welcome to another episode of Rural Discussion with Agent Smith. It is January the 12th, 10.21 p.m. Pacific Time in the year 2020. This week, a bunch of stuff has happened. It's been a rather bada-bing, bada-boom kind of time, so I feel like we don't really need to reach for interesting stories. Uh, shit blew up, right? What's going on, Agent Smith? Actually, not much. <laughs> There was a lot of fireworks, but uh, and in it, it ended up being mostly kabuki theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody was pretty concerned about it, including me. <laughs> I was kind of, you know, if, for those of you who listened, uh, if you remember last week, I was saying that the Iranians would probably retaliate to the assassination of Soleimani with um, relatively circumspect measures. That's more what I was expecting. Some peripheral attacks here and there, a little sort of slow burn escalation over time. And instead they came out and fired a bunch of rockets at a U.S. base in northern Iraq. So put that in the uh, wrong column for my predictions. They definitely came out pretty strong with that. But as it turned out, um, it was mostly for show. Uh, they didn't hit anything. Um, pretty much all of the... Uh, missiles in question uh hit a part of the base where there really wasn't anything it was sort of it's a very large base and they hit one of the areas that was sort of out in the you know cows and grass basically so just to kind of unpack that expert report they missed <laughs> well not only, it's not that they missed per se it's that they purposely missed that's kind of the takeaway there and I'm not sure exactly what kind of weapons they used, because I would be surprised if there were ballistic missiles that had that kind of accuracy to be able to pick a specific part of the base like that. You know, somebody more familiar with uh, weapons would know better than me, but that would su- kind of surprise me. I almost thought maybe they said it was ballistic missiles, but then actually maybe used something else like uh, cruise missiles or drone strikes or something. But I think the U.S. did uh, say, the U.S. government, that is, said that they detected the missiles incoming uh, over radar, so, you know, maybe it was. <clears throat> but regardless, uh, what what they did, allegedly, is that they the Iranian government told the Iraqi government, since technically it is an Iraqi base and not actually a U.S. base, it's an Iraqi base that U.S. forces were being allowed to use. So the Iranian government gave the Iraqi government forewarning uh, that they were going to attack that base, and I think the other base as well, up in Erbil, uh, that was also attacked. And so the Iraqi government kind of turned around and told the U.S., and the Iranian government was probably assuming that that would happen. So between the forewarning and then the fact that they did not target areas of the base where there would be people kind of suggests that it was more of a warning shot than an actual attack. Mm. Uh, it looked like an attack when it was happening. <laughs> everybody, everybody all over the media was kind of in panic mode about it because everybody kind of assumed uh, that the Trump administration would respond uh, disproportionately since the Trump administration had been saying that beforehand. They had uh, issued a series of threats about how if the Iranian government did anything uh, in response to Soleimani's assassination, then they would respond disproportionately. And uh, Trump also specifically came out and said that there were 52 targets within Iran that would be struck, 52 being chosen because that was the number of hostages taken in the Iran hostage crisis way back in uh, 
1980, 1981, whenever it was. So that, and also Trump's reputation as uh, a volatile mercurial leader, shall we say, kind of made everybody assume that war was almost inevitable. You know, shortly if the Iranians are going to attack a U.S. base, then uh, the shit's going to hit the fan, the balloon's going up, you know, etc. And nope, turned out to just be a total horse and pony show by both sides. And, and uh, you know, evidence of that is just the fact that after the attack happened, both sides just declared victory and walked away. <laughs> we showed them. Yeah, that, that was it. So it actually ended up being a non-event. And not only did that uh, ballistic missile attack end up being a non-event, the whole series of escalations leading up to it were basically just part of one overarching series of political theater. Uh, you know, from the beginning... It's it's not really clear why it started. You know, it started with the Kaitab Hezbollah uh, rocket attack on the on the U.S. forces at that Iraqi base. Now, that's the one that killed the U.S. contractor. So it's still not entirely clear why that happened. It may have been directed by the Iranian government. The militia may have been acting on its own since they're not directly controlled by the Iranian government. Um, I'm a little skeptical they would have done it without at least giving them some forewarning. But you know, who's to say? Uh, and also, it may be that the militia made the rocket attack. To, well, uh, how do I say that? They made they did the rocket attack under the assumption that there wouldn't necessarily be casualties. You know, the rockets are pretty inaccurate. And it's not necessarily that unusual uh, for the green zone in Baghdad, for example, to get rocketed. So lobbing around rockets is not uncommon in Iraq these days uh, when done as done by militias of one sort or another. Uh, it kind of tapered down, tapered off a little bit during the war against uh, the Islamic State. But since then, it's a hobby that's been making a comeback, shall we say. So they may have made that rocket attack, assuming that nobody would die, and then maybe were kind of as surprised as anybody when the U.S. contractor died and uh, figured that they were in a bit of trouble. So regardless of why the initial attack happened, the subsequent tit-for-tat series of escalations was basically just political theater, it seems. Neither... Iran or the U.S. is really interested in an actual war. Um, they are interested very much so in brinksmanship, which is what we've definitely seen a lot of over the past six months or so. And uh, that's more what we've seen here. Uh, the assassination of Soleimani was definitely a disproportionate response uh, to the death of the U.S. contractor, but that was a purposeful effort on the part of the Trump administration uh, to prevent sort of a slow drip tit-for-tat escalation over time. They just sort of cut that short. That's a strategy that you can do when you're facing tit-for-tat escalations. Um, also, probably partly political to look tough. I mean, a lot of this, uh, what's been happening over the past week and change has probably been more about uh, political incentives than strategic incentives. And we'll, I'll talk a little more about that in a minute. Uh, but after the assassination was uh, completed, the Iranian government had its own political problem, which is that it had to be seen uh, by its core supporters, its core constituents in Iran, uh, to respond. But it also, you know, like I said, Iran doesn't want a war either. So that response had to kind of toe the line between seeming like a strong response to Iranians, but not so strong that the U.S. felt it would have to escalate further. <clears throat> and so that in turn is how we ended up with that sort of showpiece ballistic missile attack. And because no U.S. Uh, citizens were killed, 
Uh, and because there was sort of the de facto forewarning, uh, the Trump administration was able to kind of shake it off and argue that it wasn't an actual attack and that it was a signal that uh, the Iranians didn't want to escalate and then just say that, it, in effect, the U.S. had gotten the better end of the deal because they killed Soleimani without any substantive price to pay. So that was kind of the end of that. Uh, write something real quick, quick. But yeah, that's why I say it was all just mutual political kabuki theater. It's um, It was just posturing uh, by both governments to try to shore up their image amongst their respective uh, constituencies. Not much of substance was really accomplished. The assassination of Soleimani was significant. Uh, that could be argued to be a substantive strategic move. But you know, the Trump administration is not really known for its strategic planning. So it's debatable whether or not the U.S. is actually going to do anything with that. Uh, that remains to be seen. But I did have some notes here on the issue. That's, uh, that's sort of my short summary of what happened, just to give you a rough idea. But getting into the notes here, um, just touching briefly on the 52 targets, one of the things that Trump said when he issued that threat uh, about the 52 targets in Iran is that he would also strike cultural targets. And that's illegal internationally and in the U.S. to do that, to uh, purposely attack targets that are not of military significance and that are only of cultural significance. And, you know, my suspicion is that most likely that was just cheap talk on his part. You know, he was probably just making a laundry list of random shit that the U.S. would attack and without even really thinking about it. Um, and I, it was a little humorous to watch some of the Trump administration's officials kind of try to dance around it. Because, you know, they, they know that it's that that's illegal and that they can't really do that. Uh, and if Trump had actually ordered that, there probably would have been some issues of some kind within the chain of command. So the Trump administration kind of had to do a little political maneuvering there to try to take the heat off on that one. But beyond that, more cheap talk on the part of the administration. Uh, so next here. The threats about, okay, so one of the things that happened after the assassination, assassination of Soleimani is that the Iraqi government came out and asked the U.S. Uh, to leave, to pull out from the base. So that's not actually true. This is something that I've seen a lot on social media about, uh, you know, the U.S. was asked to leave. Why isn't the U.S. leaving? It was not actually asked to leave. What happened is that the Iraqi government voted, um, well, I should say more specifically, uh, the Iraqi parliament voted on a non-binding resolution asking the Iraqi government to ask the U.S. to leave. So that's something in the pipe, but because it's non-binding, uh, the Iraqi government doesn't have to do that. And it's also worth noting that in that vote within the Iraqi parliament, there were no Sunni politicians and no Kurdish politicians that voted. They, they all abstained. And so that kind of brings into question uh, just how legitimate and representative that vote is of the broader public will. I don't doubt that most people in Iraq would much prefer the United States uh, and Iranian military forces uh, to pull out of Iraq. You know, that's no stretch. But the problem is that you can't really ask the Iranians to leave because their official military forces are not present. Iranian influence in Iraq is exercised through militias, which are Iraqi uh, in origin. So that being the case, that brings into question just how the, Iraq, the Iraqi government can actually ask them 
to leave. I mean, you can't really ask a country to just give up its influence, you know, in the form of militias that they're supporting. It's not really feasible. So the Iraqi government is not really in a position to ask the Iranians to leave because, again, they're acting through militias that are native. And that being the case, asking the U.S. to leave then uh, would principally serve to remove a point of leverage that the Iraqi government has to bring to bear against uh, the Iranian government. You know, so long as the U.S. is technically present, you know, either officially or unofficially, uh, that gives the Iraqi government leverage in their relationship with the Iranian government. And uh, that's something that they can use there to try to mitigate influence. Um, again, popular will would probably push for a broad pullout by both sides, but I suspect that the political parties in Iraq themselves uh, that are more anti-Iranian, uh, or more accurately, more nationalist in nature, they'll probably be the ones to be more skeptical uh, of asking the U.S. to pull out. They kind of see that as being more of a move that would disproportionately benefit Iran and benefit their political rivals within the Iraqi government. So ironically, it could actually be Iraqi nationalist parties that end up asking the U.S. Uh, to stay, uh, or at least blocking the move to try to push them out. Um, could end up leaving anyway. The Trump administration is not super gung-ho about being in the Middle East, uh, so that could still happen, but debatable. It's it's something that's going to play out over the next couple months, so it's not going to be something that's settled soon. Uh, and the reason for that is that the Iraqi government right now is actually a lame duck government. Uh, you know, you may re we actually talked about the Iraqi protests a couple weeks ago, and uh, one of the outcomes of those protests is that uh, the Iraqi government lost a vote of no confidence. So what that means then is that the current government is just a caretaker government uh, that's going to be in place until new elections can be held. And that being the case, uh, it's probably pretty unlikely that major legislation is going to be introduced until after the elections. So the elections aren't going to happen for another month or two, probably. And even then, after that, there's probably going to be a lot of haggling over uh, how to form a government, you know, who, which parties are going to form coalitions to form governments and, uh, you know, those sorts of negotiations in Iraq usually take a lot of time. I think Iraq actually holds the record for longest time without a government, specifically because of a, an inability between the different political parties to reach a consensus on how to form a governing coalition. I think that record was set way back in the day, though. It's been 10, 15 years since that happened. But uh, it's still a difficult process even now. It'll probably take another month or two of negotiations to get all that squared away. So all told, it could be as much as four months uh, before the new government is in place. And then there will be, and then only then will the question of whether or not to ask the U.S. to leave, uh, only then will that probably really be substantively addressed legislatively. And again, there's probably going to be a big negotiation uh, within the Iraqi parliament about whether or not that's the best way to go. So that could add on another month before we get a final decision on that count. So don't look for that to be resolved anytime soon, basically. Uh, there was also a threat by Trump. Trump's just full of threats the past couple of weeks. The Iraqi government, after the Iraqi government voted on that non-binding resolution, uh, Donald Trump came out and said that the U.S., if the U.S. was made to leave Iraq on quote-unquote unfriendly terms, um, however you want to define that, uh, if the U.S. was made to leave on unfriendly terms, then the U.S. would put sank no, not sanctions, but uh, yeah, it was saying he's threatened to put sanctions on Iraq. 
until the U.S. was compensated for building the base. Technically, the base was built by the U.S. back during the Iraq War, and apparently the Trump administration's position is that if the U.S. is forced to leave on quote-unquote unfriendly terms, uh, then it's going to be then it's going to demand compensation for the construction of the base, which is pretty bizarre in a number of ways. Um, I don't recall the Iraqi government asking the U.S. to build the base in the first place, so I think he's on shaky ground on that. But it's probably most likely more cheap talk on the part of administration to try to look tough. There was probably a perceived political threat there, um, not from the Iraqis themselves, but a political threat in the sense that maybe uh, the Trump administration would open itself up to some criticism by its core constituents. Uh, if the Iraqi government did force to leave the U.S. in a way that did not look like it was something that was agreed to mutually. So a little more cheap talk there, I suspect, that probably won't come to anything. I have to say probably, because the Trump administration can be pretty unpredictable, but that's my suspicion. Uh, probably won't come to anything. So let's see. We talked about uh, the Kabuki Theater. You know, neither the U.S. or the Iranian governments really want a confrontation. Neither one gets something that it wants. Uh, the Iranian government knows that it's not going to win a war against the U.S., so it wants to make sure that brinksmanship with the U.S. never reaches a point where it can realistically uh, spill over into an actual conflict. Uh, the U.S., for its part, isn't worried about a conflict. It just, uh, well, it is worried about a conflict. It doesn't want uh, to get more involved in the Middle East. The Trump administration uh, has partly derived its legitimacy amongst its core constituents uh, by trying to distance the U.S. Uh, from Middle Eastern conflicts. So while the U.S. does want to pressure Iran, um, the Trump administration doesn't want to get sucked into an overarching con to get sucked into a conflict with Iran. And those are somewhat contradictory goals. But one of the things we've learned from this recent spat is that there is a revealed preference on the part of the U.S. Uh, to prioritize staying out of a conflict in the Middle East over and above uh, looking tough. That seems to be the more important priority. So in that sense, both the U.S. and Iran are definitely not looking for conflict. And uh, what that kind of tells us is that the confrontation between them going on right now uh, probably is just going to be more theater. There's probably not a realistic chance of an actual war. And that in turn kind of colors what's been going on for the past few months a bit differently because there was a real fear that in the actions that the Iranian government was taking in terms of brink brinksmanship with the U.S. had a real possibility of spilling over into war. Uh, but it looks like, given what's happened over the past week, that that's probably not true. It probably is just signaling that uh, is not really backed up by substantive commitments to actually escalate to the point of combat. So that both sides, as another note here, um, neither the U.S. government nor the Iranian government really came out of this looking very good. Uh, the Trump administration made a lot of threats. Uh, again, the 52 targets in Iran that were supposed to be struck. Uh, but that was supposed to be a threat that was predicated on Iran targeting American assets in the Middle East. And even though the ballistic missile attack on the base in Iraq did not kill anybody, that still technically qualifies as an attack on U.S. assets. So according to the original threat, the Trump administration should have attacked the 52 targets in Iran. And as was, they backed off of that. So that's uh, that was kind of a bluff, in a sense. 
you can argue it wasn't based on the fact that Iran was signaling that it wasn't an actual attack and etc. But technically, the Trump administration made a threat and backed off, which is not great in the grand scheme of things. I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. Um, also, U.S. strategy is still very much in question here. And when I say in question, I mean it's just unclear. Uh, if the U.S. really wants to mitigate Iranian influence in Iraq, uh, killing Soleimani was a good way to do it. Uh, but there are other things that you could be doing and should be doing if that is the end goal. Uh, the U.S., for example, probably should be coordinating with the Sayyarun coalition in Iraq. I'm sure that's not how it's pronounced, so I apologize. But uh, the Sayyarun coalition in Iraq is basically the coalition of nationalists in Iraq, as opposed to the coalition of, uh, what, what would you call them, PMUs, I think the acronym is, basically the Shiite militias that rose up during the war against Islamic State. Um, they ended up getting involved in politics, and now they're a major political faction in their own right. But they're also much more aligned with Iran. Uh, well, they are aligned with Iran explicitly, as opposed to the nationalist Sairun coalition, which is just anti-U.S. and anti-Iran. They want all of the foreigners out. Uh, they want they prioritized Iraqi sovereignty, and they're the ones who have kind of pushed more for technocratic government uh, in order to mitigate corruption. So even though they're anti-U.S., uh, it would kind of behoove the U.S. government to try to coordinate with them uh, as, the, as the counterweight to Iranian influence in Iraq. But it doesn't really seem like that's happening, uh, even though now is kind of a vulnerable, t vulnerable time for Iran in Iraq. You know, the protests in Iraq have mostly been about anti-corruption, but they also have a strong anti-Iranian tint to them, uh, given that the Iranian government is pretty closely associated with a lot of the establishment political parties in Iraq. And those, of course, are the ones that are sort of propagating a lot of the corruption. So hence the protests. But the U.S. doesn't seem to be doing that. Um, if the U.S. just wanted to minimize the chances of getting involved in a broader, uh, well, in a broader conflict with Iran, uh, then it could have retaliated to the death of the U.S. contractor by just attacking Iraqi militias. So then that doesn't really force the Iranian government to uh, retaliate, it doesn't put the Iranian government in a position where it feels it needs to retaliate. And uh, also, it would have, that would have served the purpose of retaliating for, to the death, for the death of the U.S. contractor. So the U.S. doesn't escalate things with Iran. Uh, it retaliates for the death of the contractor, and there's no risk of a broader conflict. That would have fit more with the strategy of minimizing uh, presence and commitment in Iraq. But as was, the Trump administration escalated things by killing Soleimani and then tried to mitigate commitment. It, it's just kind of a weird combination. And I think that just speaks to the fact that the Trump administration is more interested in optics uh, in the region, if not in foreign policy generally, uh, than it is in grand strategy, which still seems to be, again, very unclear in the region. So that's the U.S. Uh, end of things. That's why the U.S. government isn't really looking great right now. But the Iranian government also not looking great. Um, Iran had, after the assassination of Soleimani, threatened to push the U.S. out of the region. And there was a lot of bold proclamations about Iranian, the Iranian government attacking U.S. targets, attacking U.S. allies, uh, wherever you know, U.S. forces may have launched attacks against Iran. Just a lot of uh, belligerent rhetoric. And then it was followed by basically a fake attack. So 
empty rhetoric and uh, unobserved red lines seems to be the order of the day here. And of course, as everybody knows now, um, after the Iranian government sort of backed off, uh, after the sort of showpiece attack on the U.S. bases, it shot down an Iranian airliner over Tehran. And that's not really a good look for any government. So suffice to say, the Iranian government pretty thoroughly embarrassed itself over the course of this whole thing. And neither government in turn looking good. Again, to reiterate what I said earlier, um, both governments talked big, but then just declared victory and went home. So nothing of substance actually really happened here. Uh, in, even in spite of all the bluster and headlines, it's, it really was just nothing. It's just uh, another series of uh, media events, shall we say. I did have a couple more notes here. So one of the interesting things that we can kind of take away from this is that uh, the Iranian government and the U.S. government actually have a lot of room to maneuver in terms of de-escalating. Uh, both the Trump administration and the Iranian government have a lot of trust. Uh, well, I should say enjoy a lot of trust from their respective base constituencies. So Trump supporters really support the Trump administration and really support them. And in turn, uh, conservative Islamists or maybe I should just say social conservatives in Iran, uh, very much trust and support the Iranian government. So what that means then is that both governments had a, have a lot of flexibility. They can kind of uh, back off of red lines without a lot of re political repercussions. Uh, they can expect that. You know, They expect that their bases will give them the benefit of the doubt if they back off of a red line uh, or if they give concessions. So the fact that that's the case actually makes it less likely that conflicts will escalate because both sides uh, don't have to really worry about being politically punished uh, for bad behavior or lying or et cetera uh, in terms of foreign policy, you know, in terms of not committing to uh, given policies or backing off of them, you know, something that would punish uh, a government that did not have as much trust and support. Um, they don't have they don't have to worry about that. I hope that makes sense. I was a little all over the place with that one. <clears throat> so basically, it's posturing plus fireworks. A lot of people were saying World War Three, but it's fireworks. Yeah. Yeah, something to bring in the new year, I guess. Yeah. A little note from me. Uh, I have a fire alarm that has a low battery problem, so it's been beeping at me, so I'm going to be muting myself and trying to fix that through this, so... <laughs> If I'm silent for a period of time, I didn't fall asleep. I'm, like, on a stool, reaching up at the ceiling, trying to fix stuff, so... <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no problem. Yeah, I can kind of hear that in the background. We do have Fuzzy Cord on questions, and he did pass along a few of them already, but, yeah, you can go through your okay. notes and through the questions. As you do, you know what you're doing, man. Yeah, just a few more things on this Iran issue. Um... So I already talked about that, but uh, overarching... Okay, so what then is going to happen in the future between the U.S. and Iran? What's sort of the short to medium term uh, prognosis uh, for relations between the two over the next couple of months? So, you know, I, I touched on this a little bit earlier, but basically the Iranian government is most likely going to continue its strategy of brinksmanship with the U.S. Uh, but again, over the course of the past week and change, 
there seems to be a revealed preference to avoid actual war or doing anything that could escalate to a war. And that if something like that did happen, where that, that looks like it might escalate to war, it seems like they're going to use their uh, political support in Iran to try to back out of that. So there's probably going to be more brinksmanship, but it's not really going to be substantive. And as for the U.S., the U.S. seems to be committed to its uh, maximal pressure uh, strategy of trying to push the Iranians into giving concessions on their ballistic missile program and some of their activities in the, in the wider Middle Eastern region. Uh, the Trump administration, again, doesn't seem to really have a grand strategy here as far as the maximal strategy campaign. Um, there's other things that they could be doing. You know, there's there's just a there's more efficient ways to go about it uh, than just putting maximum sanctions on and then kind of complaining about the lack of cooperation from allies. Uh, so my suspicion is then if the administration is uh, if that is an accurate characterization of what the Trump administration is doing vis-a-vis -vis Iran, uh, then in that case, I suspect then that the overarching Iran foreign policy is more about optics, again, uh, rather than grand strategy. So given that's the case, that would suggest then that the Trump administration is going to continue to commit to that maximal uh, pressure campaign, but that it's not really going to escalate much beyond it. Uh, because again, Trump administration doesn't want to get dragged into a bigger conflict, doesn't want a war with the Middle East. Uh, it just mostly wants to look good. It wants to look tough on the issue. And uh, if that is accurate, if that is an accurate characterization, they'll just continue laying on sanctions without really doing much else with regard to the issue. I mean, if the Iranians don't do anything going forward, the whole issue could just disappear from the news. Uh, I don't think it will disappear from the news, though, because I think the Iranians will try to do more things uh, to try to indirectly pressure the U.S. into giving concessions. But uh, again, because they can't really credibly threaten, you know, uh, a real war with the United States, they again, because of that revealed preference, I don't think it's going to mean anything. So most likely we're just going to have a, a continuation of the previous status quo of uh, tit-for-tat retaliations, uh, more strategic level tit-for-tat retaliations across the Middle East, that will not escalate to anything. And I think that's going to be true even if uh, Iranian relations with Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia improve. Uh, the Saudis have been looking to try to negotiate with Iran in order to try to improve relations and maybe uh, come to some kind of deal in the region. That, that, that's a shift that happened after the Iranian or, you know, Houthi attack, depending on who you want to believe, uh, on that Saudi oil facility a couple months ago. The Saudi government was pretty disappointed and concerned with the lack of U.S. response. And in turn, they started sending out feelers uh, to the Iranian government to negotiate something. So that being the case, uh, it could be that even as relations between the U.S. and Iran continue to be on the rocks, so to speak, uh, Iranian-Saudi relations could actually improve. But the U.S. government is not really that interested. Well, I should specify the Trump administration is not that interested in the Iran issue uh, out of a concern for Saudi Arabia. At this point, I think it is more of a standalone political issue that the uh, Trump administration wants to run on as an example of how tough they are on foreign policy and how tough they are on Iran. So if that's the case, then it really doesn't matter what the Saudis negotiate with Iran one way or the other. Uh, the government, the U.S. will probably just continue the same policy of maximal pressure.
In fact, the Saudis actually came out and asked the U.S. to kind of exhibit some restraint vis-a-vis Iran uh, during the whole issue uh, last week. That was sort of their official position, that they didn't want things to escalate and that they wanted there to be some kind of negotiated settlement to, uh, to the issue. So that kind of, that kind of signals uh, a certain reluctance on the part of the Saudi government at this point to continue to pressure Iran which is a pretty significant change. Uh, you know, in the first couple of years of the Trump administration, it was really the Saudis who were pushing hard for the U.S. to take a hard line on Iran. And way back during the Obama administration, uh, it was also the Saudis, again, that were uh, very unhappy with the Obama administration's uh, lack of commitment to containing Iranian pressure and influence in the region. So that's a pretty big turnaround to see the Saudis kind of move away from that maximal pressure on Iran position to a position of relative, maybe not peace per se, but a, a position of reconciliation. So one final note here. One of the things that has happened uh, as a result of this whole kerfuffle, <laughs> maybe not the best term, but you get the idea. Uh, one of the things that happened is that Iran uh, announced that it was not going to observe uh, restrictions on its uranium production, uh, uran uranium enrichment production. And uh, that, that, of course, was a key part of the nuclear deal. So that, you know, we talked, to, we talked about this last week, but that could end up being a major strategic problem for them. Uh, if Iran, if um, India, China, Europe, and Russia uh, declare, you know, decide that Iran is in breach of the nuclear deal and that they're not going to come back, then they could reinstitute sanctions on Iran. And that'll really do a lot of uh, economic damage to what little is left of their you know, normal economy. And that could be a major strategic defeat for the Iranians then, if they do that. Uh, it's specifically because of that that I don't think they'll actually do it. My suspicion is that the Iranians are going to threaten uh, to significantly up their enrichment of uranium. And then when and then actually just never do it, you know, basically a bluff. Uh, there's, there's a chance that hardliners within the Iranian government uh, will kind of interpret the assassination of Soleimani uh, as exhibiting the need for Iran to have a nuclear weapon, so they could go for a nuclear breakout. Uh, that is to say, just rapidly push for the development of a nuclear weapon uh, so that they can use that as deterrence against the United States. But that would be a really risky move. Given the current administration, it's... Uh, the U.S. doesn't want a war, but a nuclear breakout move would be a pretty significant escalation on the part of the Iranian government. And if, if the U.S. government, again, the Trump administration, found out about it, or, you know, again, more specifically, if it became publicly known that the Iranians were doing that and the Trump administration felt like it could be embarrassed if it didn't do anything, then there could be impetus to do something dramatic. So at that point, then you could see some actual... Uh, potential for a real war between the United States and Iran. So it would be very risky by, for the Iranians to do that. It's possible, given that hardliners are kind of in the driver's seat. But my suspicion is that they'll go more for the low road. Uh, well, maybe not the low road, but they'll go more for a brinksmanship approach. Just try to look big and puff themselves up and look threatening. Kind of like what North Korea does, basically. Uh, just try to kind of cow their opponents into giving concessions. I don't think it'll work, but given the Iranians' uh, position, they're kind of in a position where they, c 
where high risk, high reward strategies are sort of their best option right now. There's not really much else they can do to substantively threaten the United States uh, to try to ease the sanctions. And there's not much the Europeans or the Russians or whomever can do to offer an alternative to uh, the lack of, well, the sanctions on the SWIFT banking system. There's not much anybody can do to kind of get around that. So they're just sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place and they're lashing out on account of it. But they're just not really strong enough to substantively strike out in a way that could actually force concessions by their opponents. So probably, probably just a lot more fireworks and uh, the nuclear deal will probably be part of that. <clears throat> So that's that's all I had on Iran. I know that's kind of a lot to take in, but uh, hopefully that kind of adds some uh, clarity and context. We did have context in the previous episode as well, so if you want more background, then check out the previous Agent Smith. Hmm. Okay, so we actually did have some questions. We haven't had a lot of questions for a long time. Because we've been doing uh, late starts, I think. Yeah, late starts. We got some big hosts today, too, so it's a bit more lively uh, than usual. Welcome, everybody. Great to have you here. So I'm uh, looking at the questions here. Can you talk about Soleimani? Who was he? I actually had a correction on that, because last week I said that Soleimani was the head of the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. That's not actually true. He is not the head of, he was not the head of the IRGC. He was actually the head of the Quds Force. So what is the Quds Force? The Quds Force is basically Iran's special forces. That's a unit, uh, that's a special forces unit that the Iranians have uh, <clears throat> that they use to act as an intermediary between various proxy militias around the region and the Iranian government. Um, kind of like the Green Beret in a sense, in that they go out and they offer training, financial support, etc., to various proxy militia allies around the Middle East, mostly Hezbollah and Lebanon, and uh, you know, multi various Shiite militias in Iraq as well, such as the aforementioned Kaitab Hezbollah. Uh, so that's kind of what they do. They they also engage in, perhaps engage in some uh, guerrilla warfare. When the United States was fighting the Iraq War back in the day, um, you know, 10, 15 years ago or so, uh, it was suspected, and probably is true, you know, somebody more familiar with it could probably specify that uh, the Quds Force was behind a number of attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq. Normally, they would act through militias. They would just you know, kind of give weapons and supplies to uh, Shiite militias. One of the things that we know they did is that they gave... Uh, what were called shaped charges to uh, Shiite militias in Iraq. The, I think probably most people in this chat <laughs> know what a shaped charge is. Uh, probably a lot of armchair generals listening. But for those of you who maybe don't know what that is, uh, a shaped charge is basically a particular design uh, for an explosive. I may not explain this the best way, so maybe somebody more familiar with it in chat can correct me if I get this wrong. Uh, but basically, it's a type of explosive that is designed in such a way that the force of the explosion is focused in a very small and particular direction and area. So rather than just exploding, you know, 360 degrees and having that explosive force just kind of be dispersed 
in the general area around the explosive, a shaped charge will focus the power of the explosion all in one place, and that of course increases the damage and lethality uh, of the explosion. And as you can probably guess, this is uh, a type of weapon that's generally used against vehicles. Uh, it's a type of anti-armor weapon that's designed to penetrate armor. And the U.S., of course, invested pretty heavily in uh, armored vehicles, especially after the first couple years of the conflict. Uh, the U.S. had, you know, M1 Abrams tanks and M2 Bradleys and all that jazz, but uh, insurgents usually attacked the Hummers, you know, the Humvees that the U.S. infantry traveled around in. And at the beginning of the Iraq War, uh, the Humvees were really not armored. In fact, I think some of them were just outright unarmored vehicles, and that made them very vulnerable to IEDs and whatnot. So the U.S. response to that was to invest in what were called uh, MRAPs. I think that's what they were called anyway. And basically those were just up-armored vehicles that were specifically designed uh, to take an IED, more or less. Uh, so when that, uh, when that vehicle was introduced, that helped to uh, mitigate the rate of casualties taken from IEDs. And so the Iranians then came in and started giving their proxies these shaped charges uh, so that they could actually penetrate the armor on the MRAPs, uh, as well as any other vehicle that they could attack. So that's an example of the kind of acti activity the Quds Force uh, engaged in and you know, most likely continues to engage in. And Soleimani was the head of that organization. He was responsible for their various operations around the Middle East. Uh, but beyond that, beyond just being sort of a military leader, he was also a, sort of a political figure. Uh, he was considered the architect of Iran's foreign policy. That is to say, its foreign policy of propping up militia groups as proxies in other countries uh, and using them as allies through which Iran could... Uh, project its influence outside of Iran. Uh, that was sort of considered, I shouldn't say sort of, that was considered his idea and his baby. That was very much a, a development of his strategic vision. And that's one of the reasons, well, that's pretty much the reason that uh, Soleimani was assassinated. Um, even though it was not an Iranian force that uh, killed the U.S. contractor in that rocket attack, it was a local Shia militia, Soleimani himself and the Quds Force generally had strong ties to that militia. And Soleimani had traveled, you know, has, had been traveling to Iraq off and on uh, many, many times over the course of the past, you know, 10, 20 years. Uh, a Soleimani visit to Iraq was not unusual. And generally when he was there, he was engaging in mediation between different factions of uh, Iraqi political parties uh, and dire negotiating directly with Shiite militias one sort or another. And, uh, you know, basically just acting as the avatar for Iranian influence in Iraq and acting as a major political leader uh, within the context of Iraqi politics. He's not he wasn't Iraqi, but just because he had so much influence, he was de facto a major political figure in Iraq. <clears throat> so. Even beyond that, so beyond being a military leader and uh, an architect of Iranian foreign policy, he also had a lot of political support in Iran. Uh, mostly within the context of foreign policy formation, but uh, he was also considered a leading nationalist. And we've talked a little bit before about how there's different factions with Iranian politics, you know, the uh, Islamists, uh, the nationalists, and the quote-unquote liberals. It's sort of a broad, broader group than just liberals, but roughly the liberal-slash-reformist uh, faction. And Soleimani was one of the major leaders of the nationalist faction there 
which is tightly associated with the IRGC. So there was a real possibility that he could have run for president at some point in the future and become you know, an actual leader, uh, an actual uh, civilian leader in Iranian government. And I don't know enough about Iranian politics and government to know what the significance of that would have been. You know, again, the Ayatollah and the Islamists are in the driver's seat in Iranian, uh, in, our, in Iran's political system. So I don't know that it, what difference it would have necessarily made to have a nationalist like uh, General Soleimani in a position where he has significant political influence beyond just being uh, a major figure in foreign policy. But regardless, in a political system like Iran's, uh, really like any political system in the Middle East, other than Israel anyway, uh, political systems tend to be very hierarchical. And they also tend to be pretty corrupt. You know, it varies from country to country. But in general, there's a lot of corruption and a lot of hierarchy. And the result of that is that patronage networks are very important. And with patronage networks, personality and individual people are more important than broader political ideas or ideologies. And so it may be that Soleimani, because he was such an influential figure, had a pretty large patronage network that was pretty influential within Iran's political system. So his death then may disrupt or even destroy that patronage network. Um, a weakened patronage network is going to be attacked by others. You know, it's a competitive political system. So if you lose the head of your patronage network, somebody either has to take the place of the guy who died or you're going to get absorbed or otherwise uh, with, well, mitigated by these other competing groups. So it may be that the assassination of Soleimani has knock-on political effects within, within Iran. Uh, if, indeed, if indeed he was the head of a significant patronage network, there's going to be some competitive fallout between different groups within uh, Iran that we probably won't see since most of it's probably going to be opaque. Uh, but over the long run, you know, over the course of the next year or couple of years, we may see some fallout uh, from that in terms of policymaking within Iran. What it looks like, I have no idea because, again, again, it's an opaque political system. But uh, there is potential there for significant political fallout, depending on how influential he was within different networks. So that's that's a rough, quick guide to who Soleimani is. Um, you can probably Google something like the BBC World News or CS Monitor or etc., and uh, they'll probably have a profile of him because he was pretty well known even outside of Iran. You know, there's a number of long-form articles that were written about him and. Uh, one of some of the things that he was doing in the Middle East generally. So that would, if you want to know more, that would be the way to go about it. But, you know, as for me, that's, that's kind of what I can remember off the top of my head. <clears throat> now might be a good time for the usual disclaimer. Um, I'm not an expert in everything I talk about on here. You've probably noticed by now several times. Uh, if I say something wrong, stupid, or biased, you know, I want to know more than anybody. So please do kind of participate in chat and point that out. I don't read chat while we do this, but I will read it later. So I will eventually see your comments. So it is kind of meant to be more uh, of an interactive experience in that sense. Whew. So other than that, <laughs> that's, that's a really long, long aside to talk about something that didn't actually amount to much. But other than that, was there anything that caught your eye, Neuro? If you can hear me. Oh, I can hear you. I can also hear a beep, beep, beep in the background. <laughs> Did we talk about the passenger plane with the in the Ukraine and stuff? 
Is this all connected to that? The passenger plane in the Ukraine? Mm-hmm. Something happened in Ukraine. I saw people asking about that earlier. Oh, I hadn't seen anything. Did it happen recently? Maybe I misread. Well, the plane that was shot down in Iran was a Ukrainian plane. That's so probably I guess that what it was. It. Yeah. That was technically a Ukrainian flight. I saw some people on Reddit kind of joking because it was also a uh, Ukrainian flight that was shot down by the um, either the Russian rebels or the Russians, depending on who you talk to, in eastern Ukraine back when the uh, war in Ukraine was still pretty fresh. I think that was back in 2014, 2015, whenever it was. So it seems like uh, Ukraine Airlines is a pretty risky fly. <laughs> Keep losing planes. But uh, if it's not that, then I'm not sure what it is. I hadn't heard anything. Yeah, I don't think the um, I don't think the Iranian government shooting down that plane is going to amount to much. I mean, there have been protests in Iran, but uh, I don't think that uh, there's going to be enough of them to really significantly threaten the Iranian government because most of the protesters, I'm gonna guess, are probably students. I mean, you know, they're probably liberal reformist types within Tehran, which is going to be, you know, Tehran is a pretty large city, so uh, it has relatively more liberal modernist reformers, reformers uh, than other parts of Iran. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, that particular type of uh, political faction in Iran is not like very large or powerful. Um, there are people in Iran whom are not liberals who want reform, uh, that's a group that definitely does exist. But in general, uh, that cohort of college, you know, student-led protests and uh, liberal reformers and whatnot, they're not strong enough on their own without allies in Iran's politics to really force a change. If there are broad-based protests in Iran that encompass not only sort of urban liberal uh, political forces, but also some of the more conservative forces that want reform, then I could see there being a significant challenge to the Iranian government. You know, you kind of saw that with the Green Revolution uh, 10 some years ago. I don't remember exactly the year, but I think that's a better, that's kind of more what I would want to see before I started forecasting a real threat to uh, Iran's government from the Iranian public. As is, this is more like uh, the protests that you saw in Moscow, you know, this past year where you had pretty decent turnout, but relative to the overall population of Moscow, not that big, not really representative of all Russians, mostly just that coterie of liberal Russian students for the most part. And it was not broad-based. It was pretty much just Moscow, St. Petersburg, maybe Novosibirsk or something like that. But you didn't see it in like Chelyabinsk, Ekaterinburg, you know, sort of the old industrial cities where uh, Putin's support is much stronger. So... Uh, for another example, you can kind of go back to 2003. Uh, on the eve of the invasion of Iraq, there was a major protest in New York City. And that was a significant protest, but it was not representative of the whole population. You know, it was mostly more people on the political left, of, of which New York City has a lot. You know, it, is, it is known for being on the political left of the U.S. political spectrum. So no surprise that there's a lot of protesters there, but because there weren't really protesters in other places uh, or involving people of other political views, it was not really considered a significant threat to the U.S. government. It didn't significantly pressure the U.S. government. So that just illustrates that uh, you need 
large coalitions in order to really challenge a government. You know, if you're a, I mean, in any government, college students are not generally seen as representative of the broader population. They're generally seen as sort of representative of well-to-do types. You know, in, in some really poor countries, it's generally the elites who send their kids to school. It's not something that most people do. Uh, and, you know, even in countries that have relatively more economic development, college students are kind of associated with being kind of snotty, bratty, spoiled, etc. So they don't really have the best image in a lot of places. Uh, sometimes students can lead protests that lead to broader change, but again, the issue that they're protesting over has to have broader support uh, with other institutions and uh, other people within the society to get their support and get them involved uh, before that change can actually happen. Uh, if a protest is just college students, it's probably not going anywhere. Uh, you, know, you don't you don't have to look far for examples of that. You know, there's been lots of college protests in the United States over the past ten some years. None of them have really gone anywhere. Would you, you know, say that just... the Hong Kong protests were somewhat galvanized by the youth? They're definitely being led by the youth, but that their cause is one that was popular from the start with the broad swaths of Hong Kong's population. Mm. So students definitely are taking the lead. They're sort of in a leadership position there. Uh, but they had support from the get-go from broader Hong Kong civil society. So it's not something that they really started, per se. It's just something that they, you know, because students don't really have, they generally have jobs, that's not unusual, but because they tend to have more spare time on account of being students, they're generally in a better position to go out and do protests and to lead protests and to organize and et cetera. They generally don't have as many responsibilities as older folks who are working in the working in the economy. So they have a more of a more ability to kind of fulfill that role within the context of a protest. Also, I have an announcement to make. I ripped that heckin' smoke detector from the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> it will trouble us no more. And now I may speak with you freely. Well, that's one way to do it. <laughs> Praise the moon. I replaced the batteries, but it didn't work. It still said low battery. I don't understand. Huh. They're even the right kinds of batteries. And I can't go into the circuit breaker. That was one thing that was suggested as a solution, but it's an apartment complex, and they don't want people just messing with that, so it's locked. You have to have a key, so I think a maintenance person would need to mess with that. But anyway, the old-fashioned, just remove it from the place worked. <laughs> A disproportionate escalation. Yeah. Well done. You're learning. Yeah. <laughs> learning from the Trump administration. The conflict that actually changed the outcome here, neuro versus smoke detector. <laughs> well, I'd say you won that conflict pretty decidedly. Well done. Thank you. It only took a tool and a couple different attempts at different approaches, but brute force works a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly can. Well, let's see. That was. Uh... Oh, we were talking about Soleimani. Uh, no, no, I was talking about the uh, plane being shot down. Yeah, I don't think the protests are going to go anywhere. Yeah, that's for the reasons outlined. There were already some pretty big protests so in Iran over um, the cut to the fuel subsidies, which we talked about last time. And that. The protests there were more broad-based. It wasn't just urban elites. Well, I shouldn't say elites per se, but urban. it wasn't just urban liberals in Iran who were protesting then. 
you know, everybody was upset about the increase in the cost of fuel. So that's more the broad-based nature of a protest that would have to happen for the Iran's government to really feel the heat, so to speak. But we'll see. It's definitely not a good look for the Iranian government to have shot down the airliner. That's <laughs> it was very stupid, and it's uh, it kind of loses them what uh, goodwill they had kind of earned uh, after Soleimani had been assassinated. Because there, of course, there was a massive turnout for Soleimani's. Um, I don't want to say funeral, but they kind of sent his body around, and then eventually it came back to his hometown. So it was like a whole it was a whole thing. So during that process, there was a big turnout, and it kind of looked like there was sort of a brief moment of national unity there. And then they blew up an airliner. <laughs> so, so much for that. Yeah, it seems like it's not a very good look. No. Yeah, the U.S. actually did that, um, I think, back in the 80s. That's something else that kind of came up in the conversations over this. Uh, the U.S. accidentally shot down an Iranian airliner in the Gulf, uh, way back during the tanker war in the 1980s. Uh, are you familiar with the tanker war? No, what's that? I'm not super familiar with it myself, but uh, it wasn't really an actual war. What happened was that uh, during the 1980s, there was a war between Iran and Iraq. That was the famous Iran-Iraq war, as you can guess. Uh, and during that conflict, the Iranians tried to mitigate... Uh, I should stop saying mitigate... They attacked the Iraqi oil tankers in the Gulf in order to try to reduce their oil revenue. Because, of course, oil is a major source of revenue for the Iraqi government, has been for a long time. So if you're in a war with Iraq, it makes sense to attack that revenue source uh, to limit their ability to fund their war effort. That, of course, was a problem for the United States uh, because the U.S. is sort of de facto responsible for securing uh, the transshipment of oil uh, through the Gulf. So the U.S. government then sent in the military, the U.S. Navy specifically, and started trying to prevent the Iranian military from attacking these tankers, from laying mines, um, or engaging in any activity that could inhibit the flow of oil out of the Gulf through the Straits of Hormuz. So that was what uh, came to be called the tanker war, because there was a number of confrontations between Iranian ships and American ships, uh, a couple of dogfights, I think, even. The U.S. shot down some aircraft. It was uh, pretty tense. You know, there was a real fear that there could be a war between the U.S. and Iran. It never came to that, since neither side ever escalated to that point. Um, <laughs> the more things change, the more they stay the same, I guess. Uh, but one of the things that happened during that period is that an, uh, a U.S. Navy ship uh, mistook an Iranian airliner for uh, an Iranian combat plane of some sort. I don't know what specifically they thought it was, but uh, they very thoroughly blew it right the fuck up, and the result was a huge shit show internationally, because of course the Iranians accused the United States of purposely shooting down an Iranian airliner and murdering hundreds of people and etc. And the whole thing ended up going to international arbitration and yeah, it was very bad PR for the United States suffice to say, and the Iranian government made hay out of it politically. Uh, by pointing out, you know, the evil of the United States and just sort of reiterating its traditional opposition to U.S. presence in the region and uh, just whipping up their base constituents generally, essentially. So now the shoe's kind of on the other foot now, um, although it's kind of extra embarrassing since 
it's not like they shot down a U.S. airliner full of U.S. citizens. They shot down a, one of their own airliners that was full mostly of Iranian citizens. So that was pretty, pretty bad for them politically, domestically, uh, politically and domestic politics, international politics, you know, pretty much any way you want to slice it. Wait, did you say that Iran shot down a plane with their own people in it? Yeah. Oh, man, that's a real fuck up. I thought they just yeah, shot they, down a general passenger plane just to demonstrate that they could. But with no, the it was Iranians, a major airline. It. it was a major airliner. It had, I think, almost 200 people on it. And most of them were Iranian citizens. I think uh, a lot of them were actually students, from what I remember reading. A lot of them were students who were studying in Canada, I think it was. And uh, they were coming back to Canada after being on break or something. And uh, there was and a disproportionate share of the passengers were Iranian Canadian students, I think it was. Oh, know, yeah. Someone in chat, please correct me on that. No, but... chat is saying the same thing, Iranian Canadian. Yeah. Man, that is very embarrassing. That's kind of like shooting yourself in the foot. <laughs> yeah. When you're trying to shoot the enemy and you, you just shoot some of your own, like, ouch. Yeah, and they're not handling it well either. They lied about it for the first three days, which is pretty, pretty normal. That's pretty much what I would expect. Uh, but as far as uh, consequences, you know, everybody, you know, a lot of people in Iran are calling for uh, the people responsible to be punished. And so the Iranian government has come out and said, of course, it was an accident, which is what, you know, you would think they would say. But then they also said that uh, the guy who fired the missile missile did not have clearance. Um, but they didn't say that there was somebody, they didn't point out who was responsible for giving clearance. Like, it's not like uh, they had surface-to-air missile systems on standby with orders to shoot down anything that came in a certain area or you know, a certain part of their airspace. Uh, if you're going to shoot a missile, if you're responsible for firing surface-to-air missiles uh, in Iran or you know, pretty much any hierarchical system, you have to ask permission from a, hi a higher authority. And uh, the Iranian government is saying that is not revealing who that author higher authority was. And furthermore, they're saying that there was miscommunication uh, between the SAM site and the higher authority that was supposed to give clearance, which I don't think many people believe. Um, probably they did give clearance thinking that it was a legitimate target, but they don't want to, they don't want to kind of go that high up with the punishment. Basically, they're trying to mitigate blame and just trying to limit it to the guy who fired the missile. So they're saying it's pretty much his fault. And that the higher authorities are not really at fault because there was just uh, miscommunication, quote unquote. So a little bit of bullshitting on the part of the Iranian government. It's not helping their cause. You know, a lot of people, even even people who probably nominally support the Iranian government, don't particularly support it. That's a, that's a pretty common theme with authoritarian governments. The longer you have an authoritarian government, just the more skeptical in general a population becomes of that government. So you'll find people who will definitely support an authoritarian government. That's not hard to find. But even they generally are pretty mistrustful. You, know, you see that in China. I've talked to people from China and I asked them how they feel kind of about the Chinese government. And, you know, I've gotten different answers, but, you know, even the people who support the government, support the Communist Party of China, generally even they would admit that, yes, the government lies about things and that they can't really be entirely trusted and, you know, etc. So I suspect that even in Iran, then, a lot of people aren't buying the government story. 
<clears throat> yeah, well, this does kind of raise an interesting question about blame for committing acts of violence because technically the person who initiated the shot that blew up the plane, yeah, that's wrong. But if their job is to follow orders from people above them and the person above them said, go shoot that plane, I mean, it's a pretty silly scapegoat thing. I feel like most people understand that part of military. Like, rank and file of military is a thing. You're not going to give just a random person with a missile launcher the ability to choose when to fire it. Unless you're in active war and there's, like, pre-stated you may fire at will. But in this case, well, someone told him to shoot that. Like, people know that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could you could argue that uh, the Iranian government was expecting a, US, a potential U.S. airstrike because of the... Uh, state of tensions between the u.s and iran at, the, at that point in time because this was like the day i think the day of the ballistic missile attacks i think that was the same day or not not very long after so they may have been on high alert uh but like you say you know i don't think especially in a political system like iran i just don't think they're going to give a lot of discretion to the military so most likely they did get clearance to fire and that they just don't really want to take responsibility for it. So it goes. This actually kind of ties into another question that's kind of been raised about what's wrong with Arab militaries? And I know Iran is not Arab, very, it's very much not Arab. Uh, ethnic Persians and ethnic Arabs are totally different family trees even in terms of ethnography, but... Uh, Regardless, there is this kind of this question about why, let's say, Middle Eastern militaries are just so relatively ineffective. You know, you kind of saw that with the multiple Arab-Israeli wars where Arab militaries kind of underperformed, even though they were generally larger and, you know, better funded even uh, than the Israeli military, they still tended to lose. So there was kind of a question about that. And one of the, um, one of the answers to that that's been discussed is uh, it has to do with patronage politics. You know, if you want to have an authoritarian political system, you, you have to have a, a selectorate, quote unquote, and sort of an academic term. That's uh, the people in government who can keep you in power, uh, or not even in government. It can also just be citizens or economic actors or whomever, just whomever is in your network that whose support you need to stay in power, that's your selectorate. In a democracy, that's broad swaths of the population, you know, that's voters, a uh, voting block of some kind. In an authoritarian system, generally it's a couple key economic elites, uh, or maybe not even that, maybe just a couple of key guys in the national security apparatus, if you're running a particularly repressive regime. So in the case of uh, a lot of Arab political systems in the Middle East, generally things are very hierarchical like that. And because of that, because political systems are so authoritarian and because political leaders are so, uh, because political leaders prioritize uh, staying in power, they try to expand their network throughout the government and appoint people who are loyal rather than people who are necessarily the best suited to a given job. So that extends to the military in particular because, of course, the military being in control of uh, the state's monopoly of violence, shall we say, uh, because they control the state violence, they're in a position, they're in a privileged position wherein they can overthrow the government pretty much at will if they really wanted to. So if you're an authoritarian leader who's worried about people overthrowing you, securing the military is a pretty high priority. 
So in order to kind of deal with that, you make damn sure that the highest level leaders in the military are very loyal to you. So the upshot of that is that the military doesn't just coup the stage a coup and you know throw you out of power. You you mitigate that risk. But the downside is that you don't really have professionals in control of the military. And the result of that is that your military underperforms uh, in a conflict uh, or otherwise operates in a suboptimal fashion. And I think that's probably happening in Iran. Probably. I don't, I'm not familiar enough with Iran's military to say that it's definitely true, but Iran has a very similar political system in that it's relatively authoritarian and that uh, political elites are concerned about being overthrown and so are probably stacking the military with uh, people who are political appointees uh, rather than appointing people who are, uh, again, military professionals. So that's uh, that kind of ties into the shoot down of the airliner in the sense that it may be that uh, the people responsible for shooting down the airliner are political appointees who don't necessarily know what they're doing. That, that may have been just uh, incompetence. It could have just been an accident that anybody could have, you know, carried out. It could have happened to anybody. But it may also be that in this particular case, that it might also have been due to general incompetence on the, on the part of some political appointee officer. We may not know for some time. It's, I suspect the Iranian government isn't going to be very forthcoming about the issue, but that's, uh, that's just an interest, interesting thought that came to mind that ties into that other discussion, that other sort of debate about the efficacy of uh, authoritarian institutions in the Middle East. <clears throat> so let's see, we had another question here. If the U.S. were to strike Iran, to what extent would Russia be obliged to defend Iran? Uh, none. No obligation whatsoever. There is no treaty alliance between Iran and Russia. Russia has no de facto or informal military ties to Iran like the United States has with Saudi Arabia that would obligate Russia to come to its defense. And as far as we know, there's no secret understanding or, you know, secret alliance or anything to that effect. Um, I, I Hypothetically, there could be since it is, you know, quote unquote secret if it exists, but I'm pretty skeptical that the Russians would commit to that. You know, the Russian government in general, there's sort of an old saying in international relations, nations don't have friends, they have interests. And Russia definitely <laughs> constructs its foreign policy around that. Uh, they don't really like allying with uh, other countries much unless they're the uh, senior partner. You know, CISTO is an example of that. Uh, CISTO is sort of Russia's equivalent of NATO. It's a defense, it's a mutual defense uh, pact that Russia has with certain nations and it's quote unquote near abroad, as they call it. Uh, let me see, I think I can remember them. It's Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, uh, and Armenia. I think those are the only ones. So those are all countries that the, that the uh, Russian government would be obligated to defend if they came under attack from a foreign nation. It's a part of their treaty alliance. You know, Russia has no such obligation with Iran. And uh, I think if Iran did come under attack by, you know, probably the United States, uh, I don't, can't think of any other country that would want to. Um, I guess maybe Israel, but that's, that's not going to be like an invasion or anything. But uh, 
even if that were to happen, even if Iran did end up in a war with the United States or Israel, I don't think Russia would even really want to get involved then. It's just a confrontation with the United States is not what the Russian government wants. They don't mind biting at the heels of the United States. You know, they'll do disinformation stuff. They'll get involved in Syria, but they're not going to do it if they think that there's a substantive threat of U.S. retaliation. You know, they got involved in Ukraine because the U.S. government was not committed there, like, at all. And the U.S. government had sent every signal under the Obama administration that the U.S. government was not interested in really expanding uh, the scope of U.S. international commitments. And the, the Russians only got involved in Syria uh, after it became apparent that the U.S. was not interested. You know, that was after the uh, failed enforcement of that red line by the Obama administration. And just general signals in general from the Obama administration that they were not that invested in Syria. So it was only then, after the first couple of years of the conflict, uh, that the Russians really stepped in and started up to their commitment and involvement in the Syrian conflict. So all of that just illustrates that the Russians don't want to directly compete with, well, directly confront the United States. And if they got involved in Iran, there would be a pretty substantive risk of that. The U.S. would probably retaliate in some place like Syria or Ukraine, which, again, they're not really... They don't want that because they know that if there is a broader competition with the United States in that vein, they would probably lose. Now, we've, we've talked before on here about how the Russian government does not want another Cold War with the United States because they just don't have the resources to wage that. They didn't even really have the resources to wage the first Cold War. So a second one now when Russia is much weaker than the Soviet Union was, it's really not in their interests. You know, the Russian government's strategy vis-a-vis -vis the United States is more one of brinksmanship uh, or at least it was until the Trump administration. Now it's kind of one more of trying to butter up to the Trump administration and try to take advantage of the fact that the Trump administration wants to kind of back off of pressuring Russia and uh, try to negotiate its way out of tensions in Europe, which may or may not work. We'll see. But that just illustrates uh, why I don't think the Russians would get involved with Iran if there was a war between Iran and the United States. It's not, it's not really worth it strategically to them, given that they are trying to improve relations with the Trump administration in particular, but also just in general, that would be a major escalation on their part. They might do something more mild, like uh, give financial support or military support to the Iranian government in the event of a war. That's possible. They could do that on the low down and you know have it be a clandestine operation, kind of like what the U.S. was doing in Afghanistan back in the 1980s. You know, that's pretty feasible. There would be plausible deniability, and the U.S. can't really get too mad about that. They would probably retaliate, but they wouldn't retaliate too hard. It would probably be manageable. So that that's pretty possible. But I don't think they would do anything beyond that. You know, There's not going to be like a World War III scenario happening. Uh, Moscow is not that invested in Iran. You know, Really, for the Russian government, Iran is just a market. It's uh, a market for... Specifically, Russian defense goods. You know, the Russian defense industry needs uh, an outlet for their products. You know, be they vehicles, weapons, etc. And Iran has been a big buyer. You know, I think in particular they uh, had a high-profile purchase of some of Russia's more advanced surface-to-air missile systems. I think the Pamir, the Parmir. I think that's what the Russians call it. I don't, I don't quite remember off the top of my head. <clears throat> But they've definitely been one of their bigger customers. And, uh, you know, nobody was happier to see sanctions 
after the new uh, sanctions against Iran alleviated after the Iran nuclear deal than Russia was because they were able to resume some of those sales. <clears throat> but uh, a strategic strategic cooperation, not so much. You know, I know that they're both in Syria, so you could argue, well, you know, they're they're working together in Syria to try to prop up the Assad regime, but that's that's not really cooperation per se. That's not it's not like uh, the Iranian and Russian governments got together and had a whole planning session about how they were going to prop up Assad. You know, the Iranians were knee deep in Syria from the get go, but the Russians again were not that invested until it became apparent the U.S. was not really going to commit. And even then, the Russian commitment to Syria is pretty superficial. You know, they want to protect the Assad regime and preserve it, but they're not real interested in doing much beyond that. You know, they've managed to leverage their presence there into better relations with the Saudis, uh, some oil and gas cooperation, and maybe potentially more sales of the weapon systems, you know, the, from the, for their defense industry. But Beyond that, I don't think the Russians are looking to like be, to really supplant the United States in the Middle East. You know, I don't know that they even really could if they wanted to. But uh, it's just too messy. You know, if you commit to Syria and ally, ally with Iran, then you're pissing off the Saudis and the Israelis, which are not countries that you really want to be on the bad side of because they have a lot of capacity to cause problems. Uh, if you try to butter up to the Israelis and the Saudis, then you have problems with the Syrian government and the Iranians. And if you try to please everybody, then you piss off everybody. So it's just, a, it's not a, it's not a great strategic position to be in uh, for them. And I haven't really seen a lot of direction from the Russian government in terms of expanding its influence in the region or otherwise trying to take the lead on resolving the Syria issue. Uh, most of what they do seems to be just backing the Syrian government and trying to make sure that, that they don't collapse. If there's a target of opportunity, they take it. There's been a lot of movement in Idlib province lately, but I suspect the Syrian government is the one taking the lead on that. I don't think the Russian government asked Damascus to go attack Idlib to try to take it take advantage of a Turkish disinterest. And probably Damascus took the lead on that, and the Russians just went along with it. They probably wouldn't even even have done that if the if they had negotiated something with the Turks. But I think the Turks are prioritizing uh, eastern Syria now more than Idlib, so they probably don't care that much about Idlib, and so the Russians don't have to care that much about it, and so they can just back Damascus with whatever they want to do there. If you're interested in hearing me drone on about Syria some more, consider my podcast. <laughs> that, was, that was my first podcast series. I, did, uh, I commented on Syria. God help me. The link for his podcast is in the chat. SoundCloud.com slash John dash Smith dash and then there are a bunch of numbers for that Syria episode. Yeah, I should probably do something about that. But yeah, that's a thing. And also, if you like Latin America, I just finished a series on the Rio Treaty, finally. So that's also up there. I still haven't done the epilogue yet, though, so it's not technically done done, but... You ended it on a cliffhanger? That's awesome. <laughs> Well, I've been busy doing the proofreading stuff and just being disheveled in general, so that's kind of eaten up my time. Making content is hard. You don't yeah. have to explain that to me. <laughs> yeah, and I need to get my Patreon up because that's something else I need to need to work on. I was going to try to do that as soon as I finished the series, but then that got delayed, so then the Patreon thing got delayed, so everything is just cascading down my schedule. 
Nice. One of the things that I did on mine, I don't know if I told you this, was I set up the tiers now so that people can suggest topics and then vote on topics. So I do a lot of StarCraft guides, and if you get a hundred different ideas, it's tough to tell, like, which should I focus on making a video for, but then you have a paying customer who says, this seems like a good idea, and then the other paying customers are like, yep, and then it makes it super easy for me. So I think that could be... A structure you could consider as well because there yeah, that's a good idea a ton of things that you could talk about who knows yeah and it would that's be similar kind of stuff as the podcast has been so far uh sorry what similar stuff as the podcast has been so far for you similar stuff yeah like the you take an issue break it down start to finish lay out the facts let them make their opinions are you asking if I'm going to do that? Yeah. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I just the format is going to change because I don't want to spend like a year between episodes, you know, doing these big long series. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go more with what you suggested, which was shorter, more frequent releases of episodes, just so I can get more content out there. And yeah, I've got a whole laundry list of stuff that I wrote up of ideas for episodes way back in 2018 a lot of it is from 2018 so there's definitely a nice wellspring of material and of course current events is a is itself a readily available resource for episode material as we've seen 2020 is off to a rip-roaring start in that regard yep (laughs) so let's see i think we had one more question uh, what's your opinion regarding consequences, if any, for the downing of Flight 752? Actually, we talked about that. That's kind of a... Yeah, I don't think there's going to be any, just to reiterate that. I'm assuming Flight 752 is the one that was shot down over Iran, and that this isn't this isn't a question regarding some other obscure airline from some years ago. But yeah, I don't think uh, the airline shot down over Iran is going to have a lot of impact you know there's there's probably going to be demands for compensation international arbitration you know, etc but i don't think anything will really come of it and the iranian government doesn't have to do anything per se and uh, they'll probably just try to sweep it under the rug or you know maybe maybe in the far-flung future uh tw- 10 20 years down the line they might engage in some negotiations to give compensation since there could be sanctions on Iran specifically tied to uh, compensation. Uh, but whether or not that happens, I don't know. I, I don't think the U.S. government has talked about sanctions like that. But in the future, that could happen. And if so, the Iranian government would then have an incentive to enter negotiations uh, over compensation. And at that point, you could see it happen. But beyond that, I don't think it's going to have much impact. And I already talked about the domestic political significance. Um, it seems to be attracting uh, liberal, urban liberals uh, to protest in Iran. But beyond that, there does, there does not seem to be a broader discontent being sparked over it. So that's it for questions. Nice. So was there anything else that caught your eye, Neuro, over the past week? Not aside from the stuff we've covered already, which you were 
kind enough to alert me to. I know that oftentimes, and this is fit with both the initial assassination of Suleimani and then this reply, which was a big miss, apparently, mm-hmm. is whenever something blows up, people get scared. I think that's a pretty default human reaction to stuff because bombs are dangerous, you know? But in this case, I think it's a pretty key example of one that, like, the plane going down, that's really unfortunate, really sad that that happened. The attack of the base that was a big miss, just because you shoot a missile doesn't mean that you're guaranteed to change anything or have a useful outcome. So, yeah, it's uh, a lot of posturing, but it's louder posturing than we usually had. A lot of last year and the year before and stuff has been North Korea making a bunch of empty threats, but I don't know of cases where they've actually blown up stuff of substance that would alarm people in this way. So it does seem like a step up in terms of the scale of aggression, mm. but still nothing like a prelude of World War Three, which is what people yeah. are scared of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think it's not entirely. It was not entirely unfair of people to be concerned about a conflict breaking out, not World War Three, but the conflict given the um, threats that had been levied between the Iranian and U.S. governments, but. And uh, certainly it was a big escalation over the sort of slow drip, tit-for-tat escalations that we'd seen before that. So it was a fair assessment. You know, I myself was thinking that there was a pretty decent chance that there would be a significant escalation. You know, the big concern in international relations, uh, one of the big concerns in international relations in situations like this where there's a series of escalations is a miscalculation that results in conflict. And there's no shortage of examples throughout history of conflicts coming from miscalculation. So this kind of, this definitely looked like one of those cases in the early going. But then as we got more information, it kind of became more and more clear that uh, it was just more theater. You know, what did it for me is uh, the tweet from Donald Trump at the end of the night. You know, the, Donald Trump was meeting with his National Security Council and there was some negotiations. And then everybody kind of left the building without issuing a statement. And then Donald Trump issued, uh, put out a tweet, and it was just, all is well. Those were the first words in the tweet, all is well. And that, that was kind of the signal for me that, okay, this is probably just going to be more bullshit. Which is what it was. So definitely more colorful posturing than we're used to, like you say, but apparently that's the new norm. So that's going to color our expectations going forward. Well, let's see. I did have other stuff here. And I think we're I think we're okay on time still. Let me take a look. Yeah, buck 30. So about halfway through. Mhm. Yeah. We actually did have a lot. There is a lot else going on. Um are you familiar with uh Oman? The country? The country of Oman? Not very well. I guess the hesitation of me saying the <laughs> country is probably a no. I'm not very familiar. They've been super quiet for the past couple decades, and that's to their credit. They've been led by a sultan who is very much about modernization and uh, stability and keeping the peace. One of the better leaders in the Middle East, easily. And uh, the Omani government 
is one of the few, one of the longest running governments in the region. You know, they haven't really suffered a lot of convulses from coups or invasions or what have you. It, it helps that it's a pretty small peripheral country. Uh, you know, if you know where the Arabian Peninsula is and what it looks like, Oman is at the southeastern tip of it. It's a pretty decent-sized country, but it's mostly uh, it's mostly desert and it has a very small population. It's like five million people. Uh, they have some oil, but not a whole lot. Yeah, it's it's enough to be relatively wealthy in per capita terms, but overall they're not like a major oil producer like the Saudis are, or the Kuwaitis, the Iraqis, etc. It's not that league. But uh, they've been pretty quiet, and their foreign policy over the past couple decades has mostly been about uh, mostly been about neutrality, a kind of de facto neutrality. They they are nominally aligned with the United States. They do have a relationship with the United States, but they haven't gone along on, you know, the invasion of Iraq, uh, for example. They weren't really a part of that. And uh, they have not really been party to the escalation of tensions against Iran. You know, the, Omani, the, Omani's govern, the Omani government's attitude is that they should try to maintain relations with Iran, uh, both for the sake of their own security, but also so that they can act as a mediator uh, between the United States and Iran. So they've just been sort of in the midst of all this Middle Eastern chaos and instability and excitement. Oman is just kind of there. Playing it cool. <laughs> just playing it cool. Very successfully so. So they're in the news now because that sultan that was responsible for that is now dead. Which is probably going to be a problem. Nominally, uh, they have, well, not nominally, they do have a, a system of determining succession in place. There's going to be about uh, a 50-member council that is supposed to agree on a successor. And if they can't agree on a successor, then there is a sealed envelope that will be opened that has within it the sultan's choice of his successor. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so pretty pretty airtight system in the grand scheme. Um, not Maybe not airtight, but it's a pretty decent system. You know, they'll probably be... That should work. In theory. Now, the question that comes up is, how ambitious are the people within Omani politics? If you are going to try to seize power in Oman, now would be the time. And I don't know enough Omani politics or the political players involved to know who within Omani's political system might be that ambitious and how likely they would be to try to take this opportunity. Uh, again, they do have a system in place for determining succession, but uh, systems of determining succession don't matter if somebody gets a bunch of guys with guns and then shoots the other guys. <laughs> you know, if they just seize power, uh, then that's going to be the succession, regardless of whatever mechanism is supposed to be uh, the mechanism of determining succession. And again, you know, there is some oil revenue there, and uh, it's an absolute monarchy. So if you do manage to take power... Uh, you're going to get rich. There's certainly an incentive there. There's got to be some temptation there on the part of uh, various political actors there. So ideally, the proper legal mechanism is utilized and there is just a normal succession of power that results in a continuation of Oman's stable, quiet politics. But keep an eye on it, because it could be that somebody makes a move and then Oman becomes part and parcel of broader regional trends, which would not be a good thing for much of anybody involved. 
So something to keep an eye on. Not a major story yet, but it could be. I did get the first question during an Agent Smith time from the dungeon group that I'm in in World of Warcraft Classic. Really? <laughs> yeah, so I said when I was struggling with the smoke detector, sorry guys, I'm going to be a little bit delayed. I have to fix this smoke detector. And I'm doing a podcast right now, and they're like, you're doing a podcast while you're doing a dungeon? I was like, yeah. World Discussion with Agent Smith, it's really cool. I'm like, I'm going to check it out. So they joined, they were listening in, and they said, what does Agent Smith think about Bolton agreeing to testify against Trump impeachment if subpoenaed? <laughs> and what might he have to say? <clears throat> I would guess that he would just repeat what he... Uh repeat the statements that uh, got him indicted, well not indicted oh god here we go again with this subpoena stuff I imagine he would repeat the statements that got him subpoenaed in the first place and I think that is the proper usage of the word subpoena I'm hoping I've tripped over that before for those who weren't up to speed what did he say before let's see I'm going to try to, because he actually shared these statements with somebody in particular, and I'm going to, I'm going to try to conjure a name or at least a position. I don't, I don't quite remember. It was a woman involved in foreign policy. I don't quite remember what her role was, but she was talking with Josh Bolton about uh, Ukraine foreign policy, because of course the whole impeachment thing ties into the Ukraine, uh, and Josh Bolton said specifically, I think this is verbatim, I don't want to be a part of whatever drug deal he's working on. And that, of course, is a reference to the Trump administration's Ukraine policy, which was being spearheaded by Rudy Giuliani. I think when I say he, I mean Rudy Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani uh, whatever drug deal Rudy Giuliani is working on. And that was with regard to the whole Ukraine issue that is, again, at the heart of the uh, impeachment question that's going on right now. So those statements and similar conversations that he had, uh, once those came to light as part of the investigation that the uh, Congressional Committee responsible for the impeachment inquiry carried out, uh, once those statements came to light to them, that's when they issued the subpoena and they're trying to get him to kind of elaborate on some of those statements and what he believed was going on at the time. I don't think that he's going to be able to add a lot to what we already know. It's possible he could come in and drop some bombshell allegations and have you know some bombshell evidence, but probably more likely he's just going to say what we already know happened. So I don't think it's going to be that substantive in the grand scheme of things. It probably is just going to be more impeachment theater, so to speak. You know, I still don't think impeachment is really going to go anywhere. I doubt that there's going to be enough of a change in public opinion on the part of his core constituents to get Senate Republicans, or at least get enough Senate Republicans, uh, to vote against him when the impeachment vote finally does kind of come up. Well, not the impeachment vote, but uh, the vote to remove him from office. I know some people get upset with me when I mix up removal from office with impeachment. They are technically separate things. But yeah, I wouldn't, I don't think it's going to matter much in the grand scheme of things. It's probably more about um, political theater than it is about substantively adding to the evidence available uh, regarding malfeasance by the administration vis-a-vis uh, -vis Ukraine.
If memory serves, the impeachment was initiated by the House of Representatives, and that is controlled by the Democrats' majority. And yeah, House of Representatives is majority Democrat. And they all voted to impeach him, but the Republicans did not agree to that at all, really. Yeah. So everyone voted along party lines, and the Senate is Republican-controlled, right? Yes, which, albeit very narrowly. Which makes it unlikely that they would put their stamp of approval if not a single Republican in the House voted in favor of it. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. And it's actually it actually gets even more complicated than that, because one of the issues that's come up is how the uh, Senate trial that is to say the impeachment trial is going to be carried out because the head of the Senate, not, not the head, but the speaker of the Senate is going to be responsible for organizing the trial and uh, laying out, you know, who can be called to testify and presentation of evidence, etc. And uh, of course, the speaker of the Senate is a Republican and uh, Mitch McConnell specifically. And the uh, concern on the part of the Democrats in the House, as well as Democrats just generally, is that Mitch McConnell may try to bias the structure of the trial in a way that uh, makes it less likely that Trump will be impeached. Well, again, removed from office. Or at least we'll try to modify it in a way where there's less incriminating evidence being presented, where, there, where there's less testimony from less relevant actors. Basically just uh, bias the whole thing in uh, the president's favor. So the House uh, Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, actually was saying that she would refuse uh, to move the process along, that, that she would refuse to uh, move the process from one... Bas basically, part of the impeachment process is that the House has to vote, formally vote on impeachment, and then formally vote to shift the, shift the process over to the Senate so that they can start running the trial. And uh, Nancy Pelosi threatened to withhold... Uh, refrain, rather, from moving along that process if Mitch McConnell did not agree to certain terms as far as how the trial would be run. So that delayed uh, the process a bit, but then Mitch McConnell came out later and I think said that he doesn't actually need the House to do that and that he might move ahead anyway. I haven't been following that story very closely, but because again, again, I don't think it's really going to go anywhere, but from what I've read about it, there is uh, sort of this ongoing debate about how the actual Senate trial uh, will be structured and carried out. So that could be something to keep an eye on, too. Um, probably won't be too much of a problem, but if, the, if Mitch McConnell really tries to bias the trial too much, then there's going to be a lot of noise, <laughs> suffice to say. And there's already quite a bit of uh, partisan noise in U.S. politics right now, but you can dial it up to 11 if uh, Mitch McConnell tries to abuse his position in a way that clearly seems to be favoring the president vis-a-vis -vis the structure of the trial. So I would file that under um, keep an eye on it. That's something else. That's another story to keep an eye on. It's still unfolding, so I can't talk about it too much. But if it does kind of blow up, I'll read more about it and maybe have more on it the next time we do this. Cool. So we'll see, but probably not going to escalate that would be my guess but it could and when it comes to predictions we have been wrong before so when yeah it... yeah i was in fact i was wrong about impeachment you know i remember we've been talking about 
uh, we were talking about the possibility of impeachment for a very long time during the whole uh, Mueller investigation thing. Yeah. You know, over, uh, you know, over Russian interference. And pretty much that whole time I was saying that uh, impeachment was pretty unlikely, that he probably would not be impeached and it would never come up. And I guess to be fair, I technically was right. He was never impeached over the Russia stuff. <laughs> it was, he ended up getting impeached over some newer stuff that I, I wasn't aware of at the time. But I think even when the Ukraine stuff came out, I was pretty skeptical he would get impeached. So that's another wrong prediction on my part. Are you saying that this is not a fortune-telling broadcast? Unfortunately, it's not. Forecasting is pretty hard. You can get paid pretty decent money if you're good at it. I think you can get paid decent money if you're bad at it, but you have charisma. <laughs> not saying any names, but... That's, that's pretty good, actually. Thank you. That's very true. Political punditry in a nutshell with Nero and Agent Smith. Let's go. <laughs> All too true, I'm afraid. Well, let's see. What else did we have here? Uh, labor strikes in France are ongoing. Did we ever talk about this? I'm not sure if we did or not. Mm. Does it sound familiar at all? Kind of, not really. Kind of, not really. Okay, well, we could just go over it again then. Because I could probably do to go over it myself. Uh, so what's been going on in France over the past couple years is that uh, there's a new president... Uh, in power named Emmanuel Macron, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. And Emmanuel Macron is sort of the ultimate centrist. That was very much his thing. You know, French politics has been roiled uh, over the past 10, 20 years uh, by people, well, by a general malaise within French politics. There's just a broad-based discontent with the establishment and the status quo. Uh, people want change but they can't really agree on what kind of change. There's a lot of different opinions within France about how France should try to improve things. Uh, the economy in particular is kind of a problem because the French government owes a lot of money. There's a lot of French debt out there. But at the same time, there's a lot of political resistance to cutting spending. So the French government is sort of, to use an, to reiterate a previous phrase, they're between a rock and a hard place. I hope that phrase is not confusing for non-native English speakers, because I know we've got some listening. I, I think the uh, meaning there is pretty clear. That's just when you have no good options. You're stuck between a rock and a hard place. There's just not, not really much you can do. Basically a lose-lose so, situation. Yeah, yeah, a lose-lose situation. So the French government can't really significantly increase taxes to, get, to gain more revenue, because taxes are already pretty high. Uh, they can't really cut spending because of political opposition from the broader French public. And there's not really any set of clear-cut reforms by which to generate growth that they can get broad-based public support to pass. There's invariably one major faction that opposes one idea and then another faction that opposes that faction's ideas and so forth. So they're just kind of stuck. And uh, you know that should sound familiar to people because that's a, that's a political situation that's being repeated all over the world. You know, lots of countries, in particular in the developed world, are experiencing very similar circumstances. But in France, uh, the result of that was an election in which neither left nor right establishment political parties were able to gain significant traction. 
Uh, you know, the, the French have had a conservative president in the past 15, 20 years. That was Nicolas Sarkozy, um, Nicolas Sarkozy, rather. And then they had a left president under Francois Hollande, and both of them were pretty much reviled by the public by the end of their terms. So neither party really had um, a lot of traction just with anybody. So then along comes Emmanuel Macron, who's talking a lot about uh, restoring France to its, you know, former, maybe not restoring it to its former glory, but uh, implementing a lot of reforms in order to improve the circumstances of the French people. And I don't know how gung-ho a lot of French really were for Emmanuel Macron, but the trouble was that his opponent, his principal opposition, was someone named Marine Le Pen. And the trouble with Marine Le Pen is that she was a pretty hard-right populist of the sort that I think everybody is pretty familiar with at this point. And her party had ties with some pretty fringe right-wing political figures. Her father in particular was kind of a known anti-Semite, among other things. And he's the one who started the party, if I'm remembering correctly. So Marine Le Pen is not as far right as her father. In fact, she went out of her way to try to move the party more towards the left in order to try to sort of mainstream the party and make it more broadly acceptable. And uh, because the left and right-wing establishment parties in France lost so much legitimacy, Marine Le Pen got a lot more support. And it was looking like she was a real threat to become, well, I shouldn't say threat, but there was a real possibility she could win the presidency. And that was a problem for a lot of people who were not on the far right of France's political spectrum. So people in the center and the political left and the center right all kind of rallied behind Emmanuel Macron as the only real alternative. So some of the support from Macron is legitimate. Some people are legitimately excited by his message and his desire to get the common people involved in politics and to try to solve France's uh, various political problems. But probably a disproportionately large share of his uh, support comes from people who just really didn't want Marine Le Pen to be president. So the result of that election then uh, is that Emmanuel Macron and his supporters, he has a lot of supporters, I should mention, he has a lot of supporters in the legislature in France as well. It wasn't just him running for president. Uh, he did the smart thing and started a movement rather than just a presidential campaign. And his movement successfully got a pretty shockingly high number of people elected, considering that the movement pretty much had not existed uh, just a few years before. So very successful surprise uh, political victory there. But because he was able to win not only the presidency, but also the legislature, he's been in a position to implement a number of the reforms that he'd been running on. And a lot of those reforms have generally been of a, not explicitly a laissez-faire free market style of reforms, but kind of in that direction. He's been trying to try to ease the pressure on the, the French government's fiscal situation, uh, reducing spending where he can, and also... Uh, trying to improve the competitiveness and productivity in the French economy. So all of those are long-standing problems that nobody's really had the political support and political capital to do anything about. Emmanuel Macron actually kind of does, and he's been doing that as much as he can. And therein lies the rub. Uh, most of his reforms have encountered significant opposition uh, from established political forces in France. And I don't mean the political parties when I say that. I'm talking major institutional actors like labor unions uh, and others. You know, the significant, uh, I don't know enough about French politics to know what institutions represent the conservatives in France. You know, I know everybody thinks France is like a far left fairyland, but it's not. <laughs> there actually are conservatives in France. 
but I don't know how they really organize. I mean, obviously they have the conservative uh, party, but specifically what socioeconomic institutions represent them, I'm not that familiar with them. But the yellow vests are a kind of manifestation of that. The yellow vests encompass left-wing forces as well, but uh, their innovation was to encompass sort of the rural and second-tier cities and those people into the protest movement, and a lot of those tend to be relatively more conservative in France. If you know more about France than I do, or if you're French in particular, please do correct me on this if I'm getting this wrong. This is just based on my reading and perceptions here, so input would certainly be appreciated. But thus as I understand it anyway, uh, there have been pretty massive opposition to Macron's reforms from mostly the left wing, but also some of the populist right, uh, the yellow vest being a manifestation of that. So one of the most recent examples of uh, a reform pushed by the Macron administration has been pension reform. And uh, the issue apparently is a projected shortfall in pension funding that's expected to hit around 2025, I think it was. And I haven't had time to verify that, uh, to kind of dig into that like I would want to. So I can't really dig into, uh, analytically, I can't dig into that projection and look at the numbers and say whether or not that's true, basically. Because governments will bullshit numbers to try to get their way, to try to get a policy passed. So that's on my to-do list. But for now, uh, the reason that the government is pushing the pension reform is because of a projected shortfall in funding. And the way that they're going to do it is kind of weird. Because uh, I had expected, I had assumed that pensions in France were mostly funded by the government or by uh, labor unions with the support of the government. But apparently there are actually a lot of independent pensions that are just funded by businesses, etc. Uh, or by labor unions by themselves. And what the French government is going to try to do to deal with that is basically nationalize them. They're going to try to unify all of these different pension schemes. I think I read that there was something like 40 to 50 different pensions that they're kind of looking at, targeting. Uh, they're going to try to amalgate them, uh, well, agglomerate them, I think is the word I want. They want to agglomerate them into a single state-run system. And uh, the idea there is that they're going to be able, one, uh, to make the process of dealing with the pensions more efficient, since you don't have you know, 40, 50 different bureaucracies handling them all. You'll just have one state-run bureaucracy handling them. So there should hypothetically be cost efficiencies there. Uh, but also they want to try to reduce uh, how much the, is being spent on the pensions overall. They're not going to reduce the pensions for everybody. Uh, you know, the Macron administration knows that that's politically just impossible, basically, to, to significantly reduce pension payouts to the broader population. That's just going to be, that's going to be like a civil war almost. Uh, so instead, what they're doing is that they're reducing payments to some people, increasing them for other people, and just sort of reforming them, uh, how, you know, how they're being paid and et cetera, in other cases. So it's going to be more of a uniform payout system that, in the end run, when all is said and done, will pay out relatively less, thus dealing with a projected shortfall. But they're going to try to do it in a way that actually makes it politically viable, which, again, is the smart way to do it. So uh, what they did then caused a huge shit show amongst the major labor unions. And there's, I think, two or three major labor unions in France that take the lead politically when it comes to uh, challenging the government. Uh, I don't have their names here written down, but uh, two of them in particular have come out against the pension reform. And they have essentially shut down 
France's public trans well, not France's, but Paris's public transportation system. It's still working. They haven't just completely shut it down, but uh, it's been significantly inhibited, much to the inconvenience of the Parisian population. And those strikes are pretty broad-based, have relatively broad support with the French public, and are causing a lot of problems over there. So that's what's been going on in France for the past couple of weeks. Uh, the French government has basically been in a standoff uh, with French labor unions over the pension reform. To give you an idea of why it's such a sensitive issue, the particular one of the particular problems is uh, a push by the French government to raise the retirement age. So it's going to one of the things they were looking at is raising the age from 62 to 64. Now, that's going to be a controversial move in any political system. It doesn't matter if it's developed or undeveloped or what it is. Nobody likes to have the retirement age raised, uh, especially if they're really close to retirement. If you're really close to retirement and then find out, oh, hey, you're going to have to work another two years, surprise, that's going to go over very poorly. So that's, uh, that's one of the problems. Um, another problem is that certain professions feel like they're losing out. I think uh, people who operate the trains in particular were upset uh, because they got special, they had some special clause. They got to retire younger, I think. Uh, and the reason they had that concession was because they have to spend a disproportionate amount of time underground, uh, isolated. I think that's what it was. You know, Maybe somebody in chat can elaborate on that a little bit. But basically, that was my rough understanding. They had a special concession due to special considerations relating to the circumstances of the job. And uh, those circumstances were not being taken into consideration with how their pension was set to be changed under the proposed reform. And so they, in particular, were coming out hard against it because they wanted to retain that uh, sort of special treatment, for lack of a better phrase. If you don't want to call it special treatment, call it a concession. That's probably the more politically correct way to call it. So one of the things the Macron government did this past week is they came out and agreed that uh, they agreed to with rescind the uh, age increase from 62 to 64. So uh, the, they backed off of that, uh, at least temporarily. There was some weird wording in the government's release statement that makes me kind of suspect that they'll just do it temporarily and then come back and do it later. <clears throat> but nominally, they've issued this as a concession to the labor unions. And one of them came out and said, okay, this is a pretty good concession will negotiate. Uh, but another one, the other major union of the two that were sort of protesting hard and striking came out and said that it was a bullshit concession and that they're not going to stop and that the government needs to uh, rescind the overall pension reform and not just give little minor concessions here and there. So probably this is going to be a standoff that continues to the short to medium term. It doesn't seem like we're any closer to... Uh, any kind of reconciliation. But probably my guess, and this is just a guess, uh, I think that the pension reform probably will go through more or less as is. Uh, one of the patterns with regard to Macron's efforts to introduce reforms like this is that there's big resistance, lots of protests, and then he gets his way. Uh, sometimes he offers incremental reforms here and there. Sometimes he offers to delay reform but then implement it later, but invariably, almost all of his reforms have come through in the end. So my guess is that that's what's going to happen here. The broader public doesn't much like it. I think a majority of people polled said that they sided more with the unions. 
But I suspect the government's solution to that is to offer minor concessions and then get enough support uh, within the union to get something resembling uh, a negotiated settlement. So that's bad if you're a, a pensioner on the verge of retirement or if you're a you know, blue-collar worker of one sort or another. But on the upshot, uh, well, rather, the upshot is that the French economy will, well, not the French economy, but uh, the French government's finances should be set to improve, and a lot of people's pensions uh, in 2025 should be honored, whereas before it was looking doubtful. So a mixed bag there in the grand scheme of policymaking. You know, it's always trade-offs with policymaking. And uh, in this case, some short-term pain for long-term gain. Investing in loss, one of the things that we call that. It's an interesting turn of phrase. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of times change requires pain to start, but as you refine that and polish it and practice it, it gets better and better. We talk about that a lot with regards to StarCraft, is if you try a new build order or a new play style or new hotkeys and stuff like that, it's going to be worse than your normal play, but over the long term, if it's a legitimate good move, you're going to be able to have a higher skill ceiling. Yeah. Yep. Sounds about right. Mm -hmm. So let's see. I don't think we had any more questions, so I could just keep going through here. <clears throat> How do you feel about Taiwan, Nero? Oh boy. <laughs> Choose your words carefully. I don't mean to put you on the spot. Oh no, I got one of the shirts. Oh wait, that, uh, yeah. Talking about basically China pressuring game companies to do stuff certain ways. Mm -hmm. We talked about this post-BlizzCon a little bit. And the protesters there were very civil and they had their space to do their thing, so it was well handled for the event. But yeah, it's it's pretty tricky, their situation, because they get called Chinese Taipei sometimes, and I don't think that's their choice, but if you're going to be allowed to do a tournament with players from there, then the Chinese government says you must do it this way. Hmm. So what's yeah, happening Chinese there Taipei now? Is, uh... Yeah, Chinese Taipei was sort of the compromise agreement by which uh, Beijing would allow basically Taiwan to have representation in various international organizations. <clears throat> I, don't, I don't know that I can name them off the top of my head, but Taiwan does have representation in a number of international organizations of one sort or another, but they're almost all invariably uh, labeled Chinese Taipei specifically for that reason. So not just gaming. Mm -hmm. definitely gets around but yeah as far as the update uh they just had an election in taiwan and it was uh for those of you not familiar with taiwan politics there are two major parties in taiwan one of them is the guomindang uh that's the nationalist party they're the guys that were that ran taiwan as an authoritarian state for a number of decades during the cold war and uh, eventually i think it was in the 1990s uh, Taiwan democratized. You know, there's a bunch of protests, and it, it was kind of a slow drift into democratization. The government kind of facilitated it, but uh, eventually they did fully democratize. And uh, the opposition political party that emerged was a party called the DPP, 
which I think is called the Democratic People's Party. I can actually look that up. It's not curious. Democratic Progressive Party. There we go. And the Democratic Progressive Party was basically a kind of anti-Guamindong party. Uh, you know, they were the Guamindong in general wanted to maintain the one China policy that they'd maintained throughout the Cold War. Uh, the DPP didn't give a shit about that. You know, DPP was more about Taiwan sovereignty. They wanted Taiwan to be an independent state. Uh, that's one of the major campaign platforms they ran on. I'm not super well-versed in Taiwan politics, at least not sufficiently to know what other platforms they may have had. Uh, you know, economic policy, social policy, etc. I do know that uh, the DPP kind of spearheaded the legalization of gay marriage a couple of years ago. Uh, so that progressivism presumably is part of their campaign platform. Somebody from Taiwan would know better than I. You know, maybe we've got some people in chat who can elaborate on that. But uh, as a foreign policy you know, follower, analyst, I guess, an amateur analyst anyway, uh, the thing, the principal distinctive feature between the Guamindong and the DPP has been the one China policy. You know, the Guamindong wants to at least nominally stay aligned with mainland China, whereas DPP wants nominally independence. In effect, both of them kind of adhere to the same policy, which is to maintain the status quo, which is what both the United States and Beijing want. <laughs> nobody, nobody really wants to rock the boat that much. <clears throat> Uh, at least not so much as to cause a crisis. But politically speaking, in terms of campaign rhetoric, that's one of the key differences between the parties. So the DPP was elected a couple of years ago, but it was looking like they were going to lose this election. Uh, the economy had kind of, was well, continues to be underperforming. Um, wages have been falling. Uh, exports have been falling. Uh, people are kind of upset about growing dependency on China in terms of exports. Uh, a lot of expatriate jobs uh, end up in China for Taiwanese citizens, that is. And uh, Taiwan is getting more dependent on Chinese tourism. So all of that is stuff that people didn't really like. And uh, it was feeding uh, the opposition, the Guamindong. And people were projecting a Guamindong victory in the election. But, of course, over the past year or so, uh, protests started up in Hong Kong, and everybody got a good look of what one system, what one China, two systems kind of looks like in effect. And a lot of people didn't like what they saw. So that re-energized the DPP in Taiwan's electorate. And they were actually to come back in the polls. And uh, just yesterday or a couple days ago, they won re-election. It's kind of a surprise comeback, uh, mostly on the back of protests in Hong Kong. Hmm. It, it, that's generally what it's being accredited to anyway. So the DPP is going to be back in power for a while. Um, the president, Tsai Ling-wen, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, she's been reelected as well uh, as president, so there's going to be more of her around. It's not really clear how substantive it's going to, you know, how substantive their reelection is going to be, because like I said, they're not really going to push for independence outright. Uh, they might marginally kind of pick at China a little bit. You know, they might pick at the Communist Party of China, criticize them a little bit more than the Guamindong would, and maybe try to purchase arms from the United States. The U.S. has been making arms available, I suspect, as part of the, uh, I suspect that's more part of the posturing and pressure, pressuring that comes with the uh, trade talks between the U.S. and China. 
but technically uh, equipment and weapons have been made available and so the DPP might be more gung-ho about pursuing that in order to make sure the Taiwanese military continues to be relatively modern. But uh, beyond that, probably not a whole lot of change from the status quo. That's generally been the pattern with the DPP and the Guomindang. But the interesting thing about the re-election, though, uh, I think overall, you know, sort of big picture is that it really illustrates that uh, the Communist Party of China is just not very good at managing its image. You know, obviously they don't really care that much about how, you know, foreign devils think of them, <laughs> such as they are. Uh, but they do care more about how Chinese think about them. Uh, within China, certainly, but also within the special autonomous regions, Macau and Hong Kong, and also Taiwan, which, again, the Communist Party of China perceives to be a sort of renegade province. You know, they, they claim that province as theirs, and that's how they view it. So that being the case, uh, the Chinese government, you would think, uh, would try pretty hard to get the people on their side. But there's really nothing about an authoritarian one-party state that lends itself to effective politicking. You know, they don't have to compete politically with other political parties, so they're just not very good at messaging or campaigning. And uh, the result is that, well, one of the results is Hong Kong. You know, they've just kind of taken a heavy-handed approach to the Hong Kong protesters and have not really given any substantive concessions uh, up until at least a couple months ago anyway. And that just sort of illustrates their... What's a good word for that? Let's just say inability to successfully compete in a democratic, open political space. And now we see the fallout of that in Taiwan as well. Uh, the Communist Party of China does try to influence politics in Taiwan. Part of that is just through economic policy. You know, they can fluctuate uh, the outflow of tourists, for example. That's kind of a soft power option for the Communist Party. They can't necessarily stop people from traveling abroad, but they can use their propaganda machine or, you know, otherwise uh, influence Chinese citizens, uh, their decision of where to go for, you know, tourism purposes, tourist, where to go as tourists. So that's, that's a tool in their toolbox that they can use. So that's, a, that's one way they influence Taiwan politics, but they also have political parties or individuals that they kind of directly fund. They're not supposed to, but they do. It's kind of established. I was watching um, a video on YouTube a while back, and uh, they had an undercover report, reporter go and talk to uh, some people that he that were suspected broadly of being of having ties to the mainland Chinese government, and uh, they basically admitted it on the uh, secret camera that he had with him. You know, just everything they said just sort of strongly indicated that, and uh, they seemed pretty blasé about it. It wasn't didn't seem to be much of a big deal to them. But uh, that was pretty hard evidence that, yes, the Communist Party of China is uh, directly interfering in Taiwan's politics. In general, it doesn't seem to have been that effective uh, because politics in Taiwan are really more about local issues. You know, That's the old saying in political science, all politics is local. So Taiwan's no exception. People are more concerned about local, local parochial issues. Uh, in a given election than they are in sort of these big dramatic historical issues like uh, whether to reunify Taiwan with China or, you know, something like that. So China tries to support people they think will be for reunification, but in general, it, they don't get a lot of traction because local political actors generally are more effective in campaigning and, and are more in tune with local issues. 
But that uh, the fact that the DPP was able to get reelected in spite of China's government being dead set opposed to it just illustrates that they're not effective in that space. They're just not good at politics, so to speak. So we'll see what happens with Taiwan. That's an open question as to what's going to happen to them. Uh, obviously, China's economic influence in Taiwan is only going to grow over time. So, you know, it may not really matter what the United States does. We've had that discussion before. Uh, Chinese economic influence cannot be countered with aircraft carriers and bombers. Uh, that's something that's going to require a lot of nuance uh, to really counter. And it may be that even that can't really do the job. So uh, as China's economic influence grows, it may just be that invariably Taiwan uh, gets de facto reabsorbed over time. And that there's just not really any feasible alternative, economically speaking, for them to do otherwise. And we'll see. I think assimilation is an interesting aspect of change that has precedent in prehistory. One thing that we talked about, I think maybe two years ago, maybe this was way back in the day, is Homo sapiens is a hominid species. But if you go back far enough, there were quite a few of them running around doing stuff. And one of the main ones was Homo neanderthalis, the Neanderthals. And they're pretty similar to humans, close enough that we can procreate with them and whatnot. And also there was fighting. But a lot of the experts, rather than say that humans just straight up wiped them out, we just out-reproduced them and reproduced with them to the point where they were kind of absorbed into our species, where a lot of people do have some Neanderthal DNA in their mm -hmm. genetics and stuff. But it's not just a straight up, like, we're going to fight that other species and take them out. It's like, well, we could just have some babies and stuff. And if, you're, if your population is much larger, then you have the advantage of just outnumbering them and presenting a problem where their best option is to join you. Hmm. Interesting. <clears throat> Somebody should probably tell the people that write X-Men comics. <laughs> They've been leaning on that trope for a long time, that whole evolutionary conflict thing. Yeah. Yeah. They moved away from the... You know, it originally was more about civil rights, and that as an, an analogy... Or not an analogy. what Allegory. That's what I want. It was originally more an allegory for civil rights in the civil rights movement, but then they kind of lost their way a little bit and started doing evolutionary conflict type stuff in their storytelling. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so... If somebody could tell them what you just told me, I think that would be really good for Marvel Comics. <laughs> I don't know, though, because that sounds like it would be TOS. I mean, you can't really use the, well, let's just reproduce them. Like, you can't put that in the movie. <laughs> True. <laughs> True. Fair point. Maybe they could do something special on the internet. Yeah. Yeah, it, shortage of that as is. A lot of stuff ends up being way more complicated than you would think. I think that is a a really useful thinking tool for people in general. Is oftentimes when you're in a situation, you have a knee jerk reaction of just what you think the answer is. But if you're talking about a sufficiently complex system, there are usually multiple factors at play, and sometimes the most crucial factor is a more nuanced one or a more subtle one. So you should be able to take 
a couple passes and then uh, take a bottom-up approach to see what are the building blocks involved in this that set the foundation and then also a top-down approach of what is the overarching system that is involved here and what are the pluses and minuses of that. Because uh, we got a nice comment actually from the person who posed the question from this WoW dungeon. They said that you're an epic level communicator, professional and matter of a fact, not speaking biased. And I think part of that, if I can uh, take a guess at the motivations of Agent Smith is you avoid making judgments and assessments because the systems are so complicated that you wouldn't go so far as to assume that you know everything that's going on. Oh, I don't know shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I would say your statement is accurate. Yeah. Yeah, I try to uh I try to stay informed and bring as much information as I can to how I analyze events, circumstances, etc. But uh yeah, you know, the if I don't have enough information to reach a really substantive conclusion, I try to communicate that. And even when I do have enough information to reach a substantive conclusion, uh, I always leave open the possibility that I could be wrong and try to think of ways in which I could be wrong and try to communicate those. You know, that's something I got out of grad school. I was in a, you know, for those who don't know, so that we may have some new people listening, I'm a dropout PhD candidate. And uh, I foolishly... <laughs> I dropped out when I was ABD, which is embarrassing and a whole story unto itself. But one of the things they teach you in a PhD program uh, is that there's never really an end point to knowledge. It's an ever-expanding question, right? As soon as you find an answer to one question, that invariably leads to more questions. And uh, as you try to learn things, as you try to run experiments and try to explore and analyze, uh, you're never really going to be able to prove something definitively. There's never going to be a natural end point where you can say, I have definitely proved X causes Y. That almost can't happen. You know, it's very rare. And it really, in the cases where it can happen, it's more in the hard sciences. You know, I was in an econ program and then later on transferred to a political econ program. So those are more social science. And in the social sciences in particular, you're dealing with systems and problems that are very complex and very frequently that have variables uh, that you cannot, well, I shouldn't say variables, but uh, that have things that you cannot directly observe. And the result of that is that it's very difficult to run actual experiments. Like you can't run an experiment with an economy. It's too big. And uh, because you can't run an experiment with an economy, it's very hard to draw strong conclusions. So you have to use all of these little tricks and side measures and whatnot to try to kind of get around that problem. So the result is that you have to teach PhD candidates that you're not really going to prove anything. You're going to build bodies of evidence over time. And uh, enough researchers in a given literature over time will generate enough evidence that eventually at some point you'll be able to draw some relatively strong conclusions based off of patterns in the findings. But even then, it's not going to be perfect uh it's not going to be a proof you know it's it's going to be uh strong evidence you know we believe based off of this evidence that x causes y but maybe it doesn't <laughs> you can't ever say with 100 percent certainty so i try to take what i learned in the phd program in terms of uh epistemology and try to apply it to how i analyze the news you know policy etc again i'm just an amateur I did drop out. So 
it's not like I'm a doctor or anything like that. You know, I'm, I am a dropout in every sense of the word, believe me. So I try to do that as best I can. It's not always great, as I'm sure people have noticed. But in general, that's why I do that. That's why I try to be, um, I guess, professionally humble in a sense and how I analyze this stuff. I hope some of that makes sense. So let's see. I don't think we had any more uh, questions. So let's see, I guess I'll just go through the notes here. <clears throat> I'm guessing Nero's away from the microphone. So there was a major terror, well, I shouldn't say major, but there was a terrorist attack in Kenya. And I don't know that it was really widely reported because it was pretty much totally overshadowed by the uh, Iran drama. So for those of you who aren't familiar with U.S. foreign policy in the Horn of Africa, and I don't blame you if you're not, because <laughs> that's pretty obscure, uh, but what happened was maybe 2006 thereabouts, uh, Ethiopia invaded Somalia, or de facto invaded Somalia. And the reason they did is because there was a, uh, a group called the Islamic Courts Union that was starting to form the contours of a new government. It wasn't even really a government. It was actually specifically a judicial system. You know, that's why it was called the Islamic Courts Union. It really was just a, a network of courts that were being set up, and they all kind of were networked together, you know, common, the same people who were all sort of related to get related to each other in one way or another. Uh, but because Somalia's form of government at the time was anarchy, which is a bit, bit of an unstable form of government in the best of times, uh, these courts started to get really popular as a, as a way of enforcing something resembling rule of law. You know, if you, in an anarchy in an, in the anarchic system that Somalia had at the time, uh, there wasn't really any way to settle disputes beyond just factional warfare. You know, if somebody screwed you over, then you told your tribe, and so then your tribe went and killed people in the other tribe, and you know that led to tit-for-tat escalations and violence, and you get what was Somalia at the time. Just whatever you think of in your head as Somalia, that's kind of where that stems from. So some guys started to form these uh, courts that based their rulings off of Islamic law. You know, it wasn't on any kind of coded law or, you know, Napoleonic code or etc. It was just pure Islamic law. And there was enough demand for that service uh, that they were able to get a lot of customers, basically. Uh, customers isn't like a great word, but in effect, that's what it was. Uh, people started voluntarily coming to them to try to settle their disputes. And they were able to build up enough resources from that that they were able to build up an enforcement arm. So not only were they able to issue rulings, they were able to enforce them. And that made them even more popular because they were able to start cleaning up Mogadishu, mitigate the violence, deal with the warlords, etc. So they were getting more popular, but the trouble was some of the people involved in the movement were linked to Al-Qaeda, uh, as well as other sundry Islamist radicals. So that's a problem if you're a neighboring country because from the outside, it looks like a potentially radical jihadist organization is starting to take power in a neighboring state and could have control of all of the resources of said state. 
So Ethiopia is the major power in the Horn of Africa. They're the major mover and shaker there. And they weren't having that. <laughs> so they uh, full-on invaded Somalia and overthrew the sort of nascent pseudo-government as represented by the Islamic Courts Union. Now, they didn't full-on occupy the government. They tried to set up local proxies, but for the most part, it was an Ethiopian occupation centered on Mogadishu. Not all of Somalia was under the control of the Courts Union. Uh, you know, the northernmost part was a de facto independent country that had separated, that being Somaliland. And then the other part of the the other part of the north was the autonomous republic of Puntland, I think, which actually did have rule of law nominally, but was governing itself separately from the rest of the anarchic uh, territories that comprised Somalia. So that said, uh, the Ethiopians were occupying that sort of anarchic zone in the south of Somalia, and they ended up having to fight a, an insurgency that was being led by remnants of the Islamic Courts Union. And uh, specifically, it was the enforcement arm of the Islamic Courts Union that was doing that. And a lot of those guys were younger, and they started calling themselves the lads. Uh, that's the English term, lads. And translated, that translates uh, to al-Shabaab. So some, I think al-Shabaab is probably the better known translation of the name. <clears throat> that, in effect, is a new became a new terrorist organization. Uh, I should put terrorist in air quotes since it's a technically a rebel uh, rebel group, really, fighting against uh, first the Ethiopian occupation government and then later on the UN-recognized government that was kind of sort of imposed. They do ha Somalia has a government now, but it was basically a government created out of nothing by the UN. So you can imagine how much legitimacy such a government would have. <laughs> Not that much. It has more legitimacy now since they were able to get some of the major tribes to sign up. So it's not completely bullshit now. But when it was first implemented, it wasn't really taken very seriously. But anyway, to get back to the Ethiopians, they were fighting an insurgency and a lot of the people involved were linked to Al-Qaeda or other jihadist groups. And so the United States got involved and they started helping the Ethiopian government fight that insurgency uh, with airstrikes, with intelligence, with special forces raids, etc. You know, the whole corduroy of counter-terrorist stuff that the U.S. military has uh, honed over time. Uh, they pushed that into Somalia to help the Ethiopians. And the U.S. has pretty much been there doing that ever since. Roughly 2006 to 2008 is when they started, and the U.S. has just been continuously doing counter-terrorism stuff in Somalia uh, ever since. And that's roughly the past 10 years, I guess. <clears throat> Now, for the most part, most of the fighting in Somalia has been done by either Ethiopians or with uh, Somali proxy forces being controlled by the UN-recognized government. And the UN, to be fair, the UN-recognized government has made headway. They have technically pushed the insurgents out of Mogadishu. Uh, for a long time, the government basically just controlled a couple buildings in downtown Mogadishu, and the rebels, the Al-Shabaab, anyway, controlled the rest of the city. But they were able to launch a large enough offensive to push out Al-Shabaab and secure the better part of, well, secure the entire city. Uh, that didn't stop Al-Shabaab from committing intermittent uh, car bombings, you know, suicide bombings. That's almost impossible to stop unless you have a lot of favorable factors uh, going for you. But, you know, in a country like Somalia, being as poor and disheveled as it is, uh, very easy to commit a suicide bombing. So that still happens intermittently, but technically... 
at least the capital is being controlled by the UN-recognized government now. And there are tracts of the country that are controlled by either the Ethiopian army or by proxy warlords that are, in effect, aligned with the Ethiopian government. Uh, and in the far south of Somalia, actually, there's a strip of territory that is being controlled by warlords that are uh, de facto aligned with the government of Kenya. Uh, Kenya doesn't want instability bleeding over from Somalia into Kenya, and so they've set up what is in effect a buffer zone controlled by local uh, warlord elites, and they try to work with them to try to prevent al-Shabaab from using that border territory as a launching pad for terrorist attacks into Kenya, uh, which has happened. Uh, you know, some of you may remember a few years ago, there was that uh, big mall attack in, I think it was Nairobi, where some Al-Shabaab members just went on a shooting spree and murdered a whole bunch of civilians in a Nairobi mall. And that made headline news for a while. So Al-Shabaab does pose a significant threat to the Kenyan government. And uh, the reason Al-Shabaab doesn't like the Kenyan government is because the Kenyan government is substantively supporting, for one, the warlords in the south, but also the UN-recognized government. So that's why they're on their shit list. <clears throat> so between the Kenyans, the Ethiopians, the UN-recognized government, and the United States, uh, the Al-Shabaab have a lot of enemies, to put it mildly. But the trouble is, uh, Somalia is a pretty messy place. There's not a lot of rule of law. There's not strong institutions. So it's really hard to actually fight Al-Shabaab. You know, even after 10 years, they still control, in effect, uh, a huge chunk of the south of Somalia. So that's a pretty difficult problem to... Uh, deal with, suffice to say. So that brings me up to the present. Uh, just recently, during the Iran drama that was happening uh, a week or two ago, the Al-Shabaab actually launched a terrorist attack on a U.S. base in Kenya. And it was relatively successful. They actually managed to do a fair amount of damage to some U.S. aircraft. I don't think they killed anybody, uh, but the fact that they were able to get close enough to actually damage aircraft uh, marks it as a pretty successful attack on their part. I think pretty much they all died, but, you know, that's, when it comes to uh, rebels or terrorists, however you want to frame that attacking uh, significantly more powerful military, you can generally assume that most of the attackers will die. You're going to, t you're going to take disproportionate casualties. So no shock there. So pretty, pretty surprisingly uh, effective attack on their part in the grand scheme of things. Overall, it's not going to mitigate U.S. operations, like, at all, really. Uh, but the fact that they were able to do it, pretty substantive. So there, I think if the Iran drama had not happened, then that Kenya attack would have been headline news, and the Trump administration probably would have felt it needed to retaliate. Uh, it's still going to retaliate anyway, but it's probably going to be done quietly and locally uh, within... Uh, within Somalia by U.S. special forces. But, uh, you know, if, it, if the Trump administration had felt like it was a major media event, per se, then they probably would have significantly escalated U.S. involvement in Somalia or something to that effect, or at least done something that made it look like it was significantly uh, escalating U.S. involvement. So that's, uh, depending on how you want to frame it, that was a significant potential eventuality that ended up not happening just because of all the stuff with Iran. Yeah, I actually have, um, I know a guy, I know a guy who was deployed to, I think it was Ethiopia. And uh, they were doing basically just guard work, I think, while they were there. But while they were there, there was somebody who was uh, 
a special a couple special forces guys got killed. I think it was on a mission. I think it was an ambush or something. And uh, from what he was, from the people he was talking to, it was made pretty apparent that there was going to be like some revenge raids, basically, <laughs> that they were going revenge killings in effect, which uh, allegedly happened. I'm guessing probably did. But that's not unusual, you know. Because <clears throat> they know more or less who's responsible for killings like that. So they know how to kind of home in on them if when they need to do a retaliatory attack like that. So not wouldn't be surprising if they did. But that's just kind of the way things work over there. You know, n nominally in counterterrorism, you want to assassinate the heads of organizations and uh, try to mitigate. There we go again with mitigate. Uh, limit their ability to raise funds, you know, gather taxes if they do that, etc. But, uh, you know, if you do lose a couple of guys, uh, then you can try to hit back hard just to try to send a message that uh, attacking U.S. personnel, U.S. Special Forces, is going to come with a price tag. And that's not done just for emotional reasons. You know, that's not overreaction. That does have a substantive strategic reasoning behind it. Uh, you're less likely to have to deal with ambushes like that if they think that they're going to get hammered for it. So that mitigates, uh, that limits their ability to kind of hit at, to strike at U.S. targets and makes them a little less dangerous. If indeed that strategic reasoning goes through, maybe they're just irrational and don't care. That's also possible, but more likely they'll uh, be more careful about who they ambush in the future. <clears throat> So that's what happened in Kenya. It may have flown under some people's radars. Well, that's why I mention Africa when you ask, is there a region that you want to talk about? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff that flies under the radar there. It's one of the less represented continents in my viewership. We do have a good chunk from South Africa, but English speaking is one of the limiting factors. Another one is... Internet connections and gaming PCs, those are the other really nice elements that make someone more likely to watch Twitch streams. South Korea yeah, being think, a world leader in that, wow. Well, I think uh, generally people who view streams are people who have ready access to the internet and probably also a PC. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, well, I guess at least as far as your stream, since you specialize in you know, RTS and uh, StarCraft. So probably your viewership is disproportionately going to be from countries that are middle income or high income. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it's not surprising that Africa doesn't pop up much. Yeah, but certain countries in Africa are ramping up quite a bit. So over what, the next 50 years? Yeah, over the next 50 years, your viewership from Africa will significantly escalate. Nice. <clears throat> Excuse me. Probably um, probably Ghana, Ethiopia, South Africa, although that's kind of a given. Like you said earlier, you know, you've already got some from South Africa. But, you know, the big, the big economic growers in Africa right now are uh, Ghana, Ethiopia, and I think Rwanda. That's kind of where the action is. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> kind of sort of Nigeria, but that has more to do with oil, so that's not substantive. The economic development, really. Well, let's see, what else did I have here? 
Did you see the thing about the British royals? No, what was it? So what happened is, uh, and I don't know a whole lot of details about this, because normally I don't really follow British royal stuff, because that just kind of feels kind of like more tabloid news type stuff. But uh, apparently Prince Harry, who's the younger brother of the two uh, princes, the sons of Princess Diana anyway, he was he's the younger son of her, uh, he apparently is going to withdraw from his responsibilities as a royal. <clears throat> There's like a whole set of stuff, you know, ceremonial stuff that you kind of do as part as uh, part of being a part of the royal family. But he apparently is not really interested in continuing that. So he's going to go to Canada with his American wife and is going to try to become self-sufficient in terms of income. And that was apparently a pretty surprising event, um, at least from what I gathered reading about it on the BBC. That was apparently pretty shocking. You mean like moving out from your parents as a millennial is a shocking event? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, apparently for the British royal family, it is. So he's, he's going to leave. Some people were speculating that... Um, some of it might have to do with the pressure that his wife has come over. There's been a lot of shit in Britain about the fact that his wife is black. Um, so she, some people apparently didn't like that. So she's been kind of getting abused a little bit. And the fact that she's American and the fact that she's not, you know, of royal lineage, I guess, or some damn thing, has uh, the British tabloids kind of out to get her a little bit. So that, that may have also been part of the equation. But uh, I was also reading that in general... Prince Harry and Prince William, I think, is the other one. Both of them are just kind of not super gung-ho about the whole royal responsibility thing on account of uh, what happened to their mother, Princess Diana. Probably most everybody listening knows about Princess Diana, right? I would guess so. It was hard not to. Yeah, that was, that was definitely a big news story. Well, in case we have some younger listeners who maybe have no idea... What we're talking about here. Uh, Princess Diana was. God, who was she married? What was the prince's name she married? Prince something. Albert? Not Albert, that's not right. Well, she married into the royal family, but she was a commoner. She wasn't like a noble. She wasn't, she wasn't even like really wealthy. She was just kind of like a dude, pretty much. And uh, so the royal family was a little hesitant to really accept her Charles. as a result of that. Charles says Prince that. Charles, thank yeah. you. She married Prince Charles, so it was kind of a fairy tale wedding for a lot. For you know, it was kind of a fairy tale story that this sort of commoner girl is able to become a princess. So people kind of liked that, but the paparazzi just hounded her constantly. And eventually, uh, what happened is she died in a car crash that was in part caused by paparazzi. Uh, she was in a car that was speeding, trying to get away from some people taking pictures, and you know, allegedly the driver. Uh, got distracted and lost control of the vehicle, and she died in a head-on collision with, uh, I think it was like a tunnel or something like that. So her children then have, understandably, a very low opinion of the media, and paparazzi in particular. And that's a problem because being a part of the royal family means that you are constantly exposed to the British media and the paparazzi in particular. So they don't really have a lot of patience for that. And apparently the dam broke for Prince Harry to this past week, and he's just not having it. 
I think I was reading something about uh, a meeting being arranged between uh, the Queen, Queen Elizabeth, and Prince Harry, in which they would negotiate it. Because apparently, this is the other shocking thing, apparently he did not discuss this with, uh, at the very least, the Queen, if not also other people in the royal family. So that was particularly shocking, because normally all of the internal baggage within the family gets settled in the family, basically, historically speaking. But that doesn't seem to have happened here. So there's there's a little bit of uh, monarchical drama, I guess, over in Britain over this. The thing that's... It's not... It's so funny, though, because this is, like, the most standard shit that happens for people in this age demographic. Millennial yeah. stays with his parents into his 30s, but then decides he's going to move out, but he moves out without telling his mom, and his mom is upset. News at 10. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that that is probably, uh, in any other circumstance, that would be the framing. But there's this whole, the aspect of uh, the British monarchy as an institution. That's kind of the angle that's causing interest. Uh, I mean, beyond the whole tabloid aspect of it, there, there's that angle as well. But no, I don't really care about that. But uh, there's kind of a question of what the British monarchy as an institution is going to look like in the future. And that's... You know, there's always conversation about, you know, how much responsibility should the monarchy have? What kind of power should it have? What kind of state support should it have, etc.? Uh, but it could be that that accelerates. We've already seen some of that recently with the whole Brexit thing. Because uh, if you remember, uh, we were talking about that a while back. There was actually a question that emerged out of the Brexit negotiations. Um, well, I shouldn't, not the Brexit negotiations per se, but uh, the Johnson administration's handling of the uh, Brexit negotiations vis-a-vis uh, -vis the attempted suspension of Parliament. I think that's what it was specifically. He gave uh, the Queen notice that he was going to prorogue Parliament. And there was a question that arose then about whether or not um, giving, letting the Queen know about that was, quote-unquote, advice, since technically the Queen is the one who has to prorogue Parliament. Uh, is the Johnson administration giving the Queen advice about whether to prorogue, or is it telling her to prorogue? Now, historically, the question of whether or not the Queen is obligated to follow quote-unquote advice from a Prime Minister has been conveniently avoided, basically, by all parties involved. It's just kind of a norm that the Queen or, Queen, or King always follows that advice. And uh, legally speaking, it's not really clear whether she's obligated, but nobody really wants to take it to the courts, so to speak. And so everybody just avoids it by not doing anything that brings that into question. And so Boris Johnson, being Boris Johnson, shits all over that norm and brings it into question. So there is kind of a, a question, legally speaking, now that has emerged formally into British politics about how much power uh, the monarchy should have and what its relationship should be towards uh, Parliament. Now, I don't know how substantive that's going to be. It may be that just everybody drops it and just goes, at, just, they just try to go back to the previous norm. That, that could well be the case. Uh, but that just illustrates how this question of the monarchy is sort of ever-present. It's not always at the forefront, but it is always kind of in the background of British politics. So this issue with Prince Harry could bring that back. Because, uh, you know, the part of what keeps... Uh, part of what has allowed the British monarchy to maintain itself, to continue as an institution, is that it has broad public support. You know, the royal family goes out of its way to try to be upstanding citizens, to be symbols uh, of what it means to be a good British citizen, 
uh, etc. You know, they just have a relatively positive image, and they go out of their way to try to maintain that. Uh, but if Prince Harry kind of goes rogue, so to speak, and there's a lot of dirty laundry that gets aired, it could be that that support is curtailed a bit, and there could be then uh, a renewed push by certain fact factions within British politics to uh, change the relationship between the royal family and the government, if not uh, significantly reform it altogether. Well, cool. That's pretty funny. I didn't actually think that that... I guess it's kind of a big deal given the historical context. Has this happened before? Has there been a royal who stepped down? Yeah, actually there was. And there was actually a movie made about it a couple of years ago. I think it was uh, Prince Edward not long before World War II. A couple of years before World War II in the late 1930s, he actually abdicated the throne. And he stepped down entirely, just gave it up. And actually, it's interesting because he had also married an American wife uh, whom was not well received by the royal family. And eventually he just got tired of the whole thing and just said, screw this, I'm going to Canada. <laughs> Wait, so we found a pattern here. If a British royal marries an American wife, they want to step down. Yeah, we seem to be we seem to have a corrupting influence on the royal family, Nero. American woman! <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I don't know really why they seem so butthurt over there about having a commoner American wife. Maybe it's just the fact that she's a commoner. You know, I think uh, what's the the new one, Megan? I think her name is. You know, some of that is because of race. Although that that that's really weird too. Have you ever seen a picture of her, Prince Harry's wife? No. She looks white to me. Uh. She looks very, very white. Like, if I had not read that she was black, I would have never known. I totally thought she was a white woman until that whole kerfuffle in the British tabloids about her having black heritage came out. Well, is it that they want someone to look British? Is that the goal here? Oh, I have no idea. It could just be a tradition thing. People I don't think silly. the royal family cares that she's black. I think the fact that she's a commoner probably is a bigger problem there. Yeah, Chad is saying mixed heritage. Technically, everyone is mixed heritage to an extent, <laughs> but yeah, there's there's racism around, and a lot of it is it's not necessarily attacking someone directly. Sometimes it can be just silently judging or considering other ethnicities to be inferior or worse in some way. So yeah. this kind of hassling, yeah, it's it's pretty unfair. It's very silly. Stop doing that. People yeah. are people, for Pete's sake. Yeah. It's seriously stupid, though, because she just, she just looks more Mediterranean to me. Yeah. Well, haters going to hate. We're still yeah, working people, on stuff. People will find a reason. Mm-hmm. That's interesting, though. He'll be stepping down. I know that following royals is something that a lot of people like to do, kind of like they're chasing celebrities. Yeah. But royals are people, too. I actually heard something when I was a kid, and they said, the Queen of England poops, too. And I was like, what? <laughs> Apparently, royals still have the basic anatomy and physiology of human beings. Who knew? We're still unpacking that, apparently. Even royals sometimes want to move out of their parents' basement, you know, even if it's a really nice basement. 
Yeah, that, actually, that happened in um, Japan recently. Did you hear about that? They, uh, the prince there, or I guess emperor, uh, married a commoner mm -hmm. over there. Do you know if they actually. do like a heritage or kind of test thing for people they marry to see if there's some royalty there? Because you say commoner, like you're not a royal, but what about someone who had, say, a noble who was up their family tree somewhere? Would that satisfy them? What do they need to be satisfied? Oh, that's a good question. I don't really know. Presumably, they would need to be of high standing and to have some kind of linkage to some of Japan's traditional uh, nobility. I would guess that's what they would want. Because this hasn't been a problem before. You know, I mean, obviously, previous emperors have had wives, so obviously they're finding nobility somewhere. Mm -hmm. So... This case here, she was definitively not of uh, royal heritage or noble heritage. So there was, there was the same Princess Diana type thing, basically, you know, fairy tale story, etc. Mm -hmm. Actually, maybe I'm getting that wrong. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe it was a female princess who, mar who married a commoner man. Mm. I think that might have actually been it. Because I remember there was a big thing about her having to give up her privileges as a member of the royal family. Yeah, I can see why they would make that into a movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, that the movie about uh, Prince Edward was more about... Um, it's actually more about him talking. Or something like Is that. Is this the King's Speech? Yeah, actually, I think that's it. Oh, yeah, I saw that movie. It was a good movie. Yeah, that's... That was the previous example of a British royal standing down. Mm -hmm. Churchill was very sad. He didn't like it at all. Yeah, he was a firework and a half. <laughs> That's one way of putting it. Yeah, he's one of those guys who just speaks his mind, shoots from the hip, takes big risks, and doesn't give a damn. Which, we talked about this some in the context of World War II. That was probably the kind of leader that Britain needed in that time period, but if you put him in any other time period, he would be way over the line. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, even in that time period, he was uh, considered very much an outsider candidate uh, for the prime ministership. You know, he had a reputation for being a bit much, shall we say. Uh, everybody thought he was just crazy for pushing so much to prepare for war and whatnot, because nobody thought... Nobody really thought World War II could happen. I mean, or they thought it could happen, but, you know, every, the thinking at the time was that surely after the Western civilization just is brought to the brink of collapse after World War I, surely after that nobody would be crazy enough to try to wage another World War. Not even wage one, just even risk one. Surely nobody could actually be serious about another European war. I kind of thought about it like we think about World War Three, mm -hmm. in a sense, you know, in the sense that it's uh, mutually assured destruction. Like they didn't have nuclear weapons in the interwar years between uh, World War One and World War Two, but there was just so much destruction, destruction in World War One, and uh, the political fallout was so terrible that it was just thought that the Second World War, a prospective Second World War, would be even more damaging. Uh, you know, keep in mind that. Three empires collapsed because of World War One: the Ottoman Empire, the Russian Empire, 
and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And I guess four, if you want to count Germany, as kind of an empire. So all of those suffered significant collapses of governing authority. And in the case of much of Eastern Europe, it was it just descended into outright chaos. You know, the Russian Civil War was very, very messy. You know, lots of people were killed in that. And there was actual anarchy. We are talking a little bit about anarchy before. Uh, Ukraine actually had a substantive anarchist movement during the Russian Civil War. and They were actually a major faction. So that just gives you an idea of how tumultuous that period was in that area. But even in, like, Central Europe, it was chaotic. You know, that was when uh, the communists were trying to seize power in Germany and the Freikor had to, had to come out. Sort of this paramilitary organization of military veterans came out to try to suppress communist revolutionaries. So there was fighting in the streets of Berlin and fighting in the streets of uh, other capitals as well. I think Hungary actually had a successful communist revolt at that time. Communists were able to seize power and uh, form a communist state for, I think, maybe like a year. Probably not even, probably more like a couple months. Because I think there was a pretty substantial pushback uh, from conservative forces in Hungary after they seized the capital. And then Poland just went to war with fucking everybody. You'd think they'd be a little more humble after not existing as a state for more than a hundred years, but nope. As soon as they pop back into existence, they're having border wars with everybody and their mother. So Poland, Russia, Germany, the Balkans is always the Balkans, so you know, it was it was very violent, it was a total shit show. And even in France and even in France and Britain, uh, where their economies had been damaged, but you know they hadn't been, they weren't affected to nearly the same degree as Eastern Europe. Their economies were still significantly uh, inhibited. You know they had taken a lot of debt on that they really couldn't afford to pay back. And uh, you know in the case of France, the actual destruction that occurred in their northeast was very bad because that was their most industrialized region. You know, they had a lot of steelworks and whatnot around Lille if I'm remembering correctly. And, uh, yeah, the radical political forces were empowered in Western Europe and France and Britain. That, that was also considered a major, a major form of fallout from the war. So I, the whole thing was just bad news, suffice to say. And it was thought that if there was another world war, that it would just be all of that only even worse. So there was a certain degree of mutually assured destruction kind of assumed. Uh, in the interwar years. And that was one of the reasons that people didn't really take Hitler seriously. Like, surely nobody would be crazy enough to think that Europe would survive another world war. That would be stupid. And surely Hitler can't be stupid. <laughs> well. Well, as a matter of fact. <laughs> yeah, some people got to learn the hard way. And they certainly did. Yeah, I think sometimes the... Fervor can cause a person to get way ahead of themselves and not really think about the big picture or the consequences of this. I think the U.S. was probably the big wild card that people underestimated a whole bunch in World War II for the amount of impact they would bring. And the reason for that was we really shined with production of just like yeah. building stuff, building trucks, building materials and things like that because we have... Atlantic Ocean on one side, Pacific Ocean on the other side, which meant we had a lot more time than everyone else. And we also didn't need to invest as much in direct defenses of the continental U.S. So we got to really swing in in a way that 
those pieces weren't in play at the start of World War II, so it might have seemed like a good idea at the time to, oh yeah, let's take over the world, that sounds cool. But is there a player in the game that has a decent economy that could ramp up really fast? In the context of StarCraft, it's kind of like the U.S. was a saturated base that just transitioned its production from all the random shit into its war effort and then cranked out a whole bunch of units all at once. Units and trucks and people, oh my. Yeah, similar economic dynamics. Meanwhile, France and Britain are getting huge army attacks. <laughs> Uh-oh. Driving tanks through the forest. Oh, let's see. I did have a correction uh, from last week. Uh, I said that Spain was that Spain was ending minority rule. I think maybe that's not true. Um, it's going to be a coalition between uh, the center left and Podemos. That is a that's going to form a coalition government for the first time since the fall of the Franco government. So that's the that's the news there. I was saying that uh, it was going to be a socialist government that would finally sort of take power, but. Really, it's a coalition government, and it's apparently hasn't really happened before. So, just want to kind of issue that correction, get that out there. We are at two hours fifty-two. So, if you had any final thoughts, we can get those. Appreciate you coming on, even though it's a little bit later than usual. Well, two things. I know um, Xe Fatum. Is that right? Xe Fatum. Xe Fatum. Xe Fatum. I did get his. Uh, he asked me some questions about um, what I would say if I were speaking to some high-level people. I think he's over in Switzerland, and he's think he's doing some stuff with the uh, economic, the World Economic Forum. I think it was. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't have I have some thoughts lined up, but I didn't talk about them today because uh, I don't have them organized quite properly yet. So I'll try to email him that response, and then maybe we could talk about that uh, next time or later on sweet and since you talked about world war ii um i'm still interested in doing the eastern front like we did with uh, the pacific theater but i want to try to finish the epilogue for the podcast and get the patreon up and running and uh i think once i get that i'll i'll start focusing on uh, kind of brushing up on the eastern front so we can kind of dig into that because i think that would be fun for people sounds good to me we can set that up as part of your command, too, so if people like Agent Smith during your Sunday segments, they have a way to click through and get to your Patreon. Cool. Yep. And then one final note here, and this is just a random note I had, but since we only have a couple minutes, I guess this is kind of the time for it. Um, so a lot of people have a lot of perceptions about uh, people in the finance industry. And, uh, you know, especially people in the finance industry kind of have a high opinion of themselves, you know, masters of the universe and all of that. So I just, this bit of news just kind of caught my eye because it kind of humanizes them to a degree. And uh, there was a government watchdog over in Britain that released uh, the results of an investigation into some malfeasance in this one British financial firm. And uh, for whatever reason, they were having a problem with people in their office uh, defecating on their bathroom floor. What? That's what I said. <laughs> Masters of the universe. And they're having um, that kind of problem. 
So this watchdog was investigating it and trying to understand um, why that was happening and what the firm was doing about it, because obviously that's a health hazard. And uh, it's also know. gross too. Well, yeah, that too. <laughs> but it's not what you would expect from people who are like high-level financiers. Yeah. So the firm said that, oh well, you know, this only happened a couple of times. We're dealing with it internally. It's not really fair to make a big deal about it. Which you know, the watchdog kind of did by <laughs> releasing it to the public. I kind of wonder if they didn't do that on purpose just to spite them. But uh, yeah, that was just some weird, bizarre news I read that kind of cast the finance industry in a different light. They're not superhuman, to put it mildly. <laughs> well, going back to the other comment, even the Queen of England poops. I mean, even the people in the financial sector who make tons of money don't know how to use a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <coughs> but yeah, that's. I guess that'll be the uh, bookend. <laughs> Nice. A weird bookend for this episode. I like the mixture of serious news that keeps people up to date with the stuff that everyone is buzzing about, but also the funny and weird stories here or there. It keeps it real. As long as it's factual. It is factual. That was a BBC World News article. You, I read that in. You do, and anyone who likes surprises, mute this for two seconds. <laughs> You being truthful and factual as best you can this whole time leading into that ancient aliens joke. <laughs> I don't know how many it is. It's something like do 60 Agent Smith episodes into one huge epic deadpan joke. And it's the biggest <laughs> wind-up for deadpan ever. Because if someone bullshits all the time and they bullshit, you expect them to bullshit. But if you're yeah. trying your best to lay down the facts, and then in that same calm, measured, humble tone... You go right into ancient aliens that people are just like, wait, is he one of those? <laughs> <coughs> it was a good opportunity. I couldn't pass it up. Yep, well played. And it is forever written to legend, and people made a command out of it, so. <laughs> Did they? Yeah. Now you have the fan base of all the, uh, what is it, moon landing deniers. They're huge fans now. Awesome. <laughs> well, I hope they visit my uh, my SoundCloud page. <laughs> awesome. Well, I had a blast with you tonight. Uh, I'm glad that we got the beeping to stop so I can actually talk to you. Uh, great coming on. Thanks, chat, for the questions. Thank you, Fuzzy Cord, for handling the questions. Agent Smith for sharing your knowledge and wisdom. I will link your stuff again in the chat. Check out his SoundCloud Check us out on the Voice of Nero podcast. And with that, have a fantastic night, Mr. Aiden Smith. Thank you again. GG. <clears throat> okay, we stopped, and it's processing, and you're good. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's always fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hopefully I can... Uh... I can kind of get more projects off the ground and kind of get back into the swing of reading more of the news. I'm kind of I'm still a little short because of all the work I've been doing lately. So I can get hopefully next week I'll have more analysis, substantive analysis for you. Yeah, I'm in a sort of planning and structuring phase right now where I'm fleshing out a weekly schedule somewhat, which I'm having less hours up presently, and it's kind of for the long con of 
having the year look really good for people being able to find the content they want because mixing in this Agent Smith plus the classic WoW content plus the philosophy content, the more that I can make it predictable, the more the people who love it can tune in on time. Because for everything that I do, there are some people who are like, man, this is the best ever. And some people who are like, I just can't stand this. I can't even keep the <laughs> web page open. But they're all fans of some of the content. So if I can do a better job of saying, well, Agent Smith is always Sunday evening, then they know that that's part of their weekly routine that they can do. They can rely on us being there, which, yeah. uh, to our credit, we pretty much have been for a while. Not the same hour slot, but the same ballpark. Yeah. So I have uh, a Saturday WoW raid, and then I started my Samurai stream on Tuesday. I think I mentioned that last week, but I eliminate all distractions. I prepare the night before, getting a lot of rest. I jump out of bed, exercise, and then basically treat it like I'm a pro StarCraft player who doesn't have a stream. So I mute every alert that's in the game. I cover up the chat so I can't see that moving while I'm going, and I just play StarCraft with my microphone muted and I think I went something like 13 wins and three losses oh, so nice. yeah it, it was really refreshing for me and the reception from the chat was really good too as long as I'm not doing that every day I think yeah. there are people who like to see that level of focus and effort and application and stuff well, yeah nice yeah You're, I could learn a thing or two years off to an exciting start now I mean this is like the beginning of my effort to be disciplined. I think we're of kindred spirit in that you end up achieving stuff because you're really excited about certain things, but you don't tackle it in a planned or structured way. You just throw yourself at the problem until you make progress. <laughs> yeah. That was how the yeah, stream was built by putting in more hours than everyone else in that mm -hmm. category rather than like having some super mysterious plan i guess with the mindset stuff we did have clear business edges but just yeah. just logging more content is good yeah i just get distracted easily that's my problem yeah if i could tackle my work like i tackle tackle this box of spicy cheetos i'd be in business oh man just mix some spicy cheetos in your work <laughs> i wish i could well, not really. I'm already too fat, actually. I don't need more spicy Cheetos. <laughs> <clears throat> I shouldn't even have. I shouldn't even be eating these. You know, I got. I accidentally got this giant box of fifty baggies of spicy Cheetos. You accidentally got a box of fifty bags. Yeah. How did that happen? Well, it's a long story, but you know, it it was pretty, it was the only one they had, pretty much. So now I've just I've got way more spicy Cheetos than I bargained for. Yeah, I've been kind of forcing myself to eat through them. Mm -hmm. Of the things that one can force oneself to do, you can do worse than spicy Cheetos. Do you like them? Sometimes. sometimes. It's not something that I eat a lot, but I just kind of had a hankering for them. But I was thinking I would eat like a couple baggies maybe. The thing for but me that's a really random craving it's not consistent but sometimes i'll just be like i need salt and vinegar chips as soon as possible it's probably about once every three months salt and vinegar chips yeah and then i have them and it like really dries out my mouth and it's like i don't know why i do this <laughs> <laughs> but the flavor is really strong yeah i'd imagine 
Salt and vinegar. I don't think I've ever had those. Yeah. I might have to give that a try. It's pretty good. Pretty simple stuff. Hmm. Well, thanks for the tip. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm sure you've got stuff to do. I don't want to keep you. It's been good hanging out, my friend. Mm -hmm. Sleep well. Yep. Keep it real. Kick ass. You too, sir. Have a good night. GG.